Hello, Topical, and welcome back to your favorite NBA podcast, or, well, I guess this is an NBA segment of a broader podcast. If you haven't checked out all of our uh, podcasts, you should really do that. I'm here with uh, Arad Faruqi, and we're going to talk about the NBA, and this is probably going to be our last podcast to, and that isn't solely focused on the playoffs, though we will touch on it a bit. And if you guys are excited for the playoffs as much as I am, make sure to give us a five-star review on iTunes. Go check out our YouTube tape, uh, YouTube podcast, uh, Topical Rationalizing the Monkey Brain. It's great. It's uncut. You can find out all the embarrassing moments that I uh, couldn't bear to show the iTunes viewers. And you know what? We're going to get right into things. So, Rod, uh, what what games have you uh, watched in the past week and a half that uh, we have been sorely missing each other? Oh, wow. Um, there's been a bit. So I watched... The uh, Cavaliers and Philadelphia 76ers game a couple nights ago. I watched um, the uh, Timberwolves play the Denver Nuggets. I watched uh, the New Orleans Pelicans play the Warriors. I watched and uh, I watched a little bit of the San Antonio Spurs playing the Portland Trailblazers. Um, I also watched the uh, Cavaliers play the Raptors and the uh, Pist and the Wizards. <clears throat> okay. It's a lot of Cavs games, lots of uh, Timberwolves games, two of your favorite teams. That's good to and hear. And the Warriors as well. I watched the Warriors play the Thunder as well. That was a very good game, interesting game. Okay, well, I know our uh, NBA viewership is going to basically skyrocket over the past week and a half. Are you excited for that? Indeed, I am. I'm uh, looking forward to talking about the playoffs for sure. going to do my best to hold back on some of the stuff because, you know, to give us something to talk about on Friday. Yeah, definitely. And uh, just uh, so everyone is aware of our uh, plans for right now, uh, the plan is we're going to watch every single uh, NBA playoff game. Maybe like take a couple bullet points just so we don't forget, because literally in the first round alone, we're expecting, well, just based on my calculations, got eight playoff series, an average game length of 5.5. And that's assuming that uh, four game sweeps happen as often as seven game um, treadmill uh, series, really. And that is not the case. So it's probably more than that, but uh, if you just multiply uh, 5.5 times 8, you get 11 times 4, 44 games. And that's in a stretch of like two weeks. So, yeah, we're going to be watching a lot of NBA. And yep. it's going to be exciting. We might have to go with like a two-a-week two a uh, schedule just so we can actually cover everything. We'll see how much we can get through in Friday. That is true. That is correct. Then we still start on Saturday, correct? Uh, yes. Good. Yeah, and then just as an addendum, I, I think we're going to consider the Timberwolves Nuggets games part of the playoffs, just because it is literally a play-in game for them. That yep, that's very true. Yeah, I'm sure you were planning on watching that anyway, so we'll just be yeah. I now have to. Definitely... All right, well that's exciting. So let's see, uh, have the Cavs really uh, turned it on on defense, or are they still just coasting? They're doing much better. They uh, they held Toronto a top five offensive team. They held them to 106 points, so uh, that was fairly impressive. They also um, they held uh, actually that's probably about the only really impressive one. <laughs> but uh, for the most part, they they have sort of ratcheted up, I guess. Um, you know, it's been a really long time since we've seen kind of a uh, uh, you know like a 148. Giving up, like giving up 148, like they did against the Thunder, uh, oh, yes. I think back in March or February or something like that. Um, so you know, there hasn't been anything like that, but for you know, they they just seem to be more engaged. Uh, I think they're still they still been battling, uh, you know, some slight injuries. You know, Tristan hasn't been fully in the lineup. Larry Nance Jr. hasn't been fully in the lineup. George Hill hasn't been fully in the lineup. Rodney Hood hasn't been fully in the lineup. So they, I guess, they still haven't really figured out who's going to be covering who and you know what kind of matchups and 
what their best defensive scheme is. But uh, an interesting addition I think they made was uh, Teron Lu made the decision to uh, start Jeff Green, and he's going to be starting for the entire playoffs. That's fantastic. So he, he has really helped uh, their defense because he sort of gives them. Uh, he's he's actually very tall and like for he's much bigger than I think most people realize. He's about six nine to six ten, and he has a very. I think he has a pretty long span. I would guess for somewhere around seven feet. So he's a he's a pretty good defender, and uh, you know he gives he gives sort of some breathing room for LeBron because he's basically the same size as LeBron. And with the same, with you know, not as good of a defender, but the same type of defensive versatility, uh, he can you know he can guard some bigger players, he can guard some smaller players on the wing. He's very athletic, he's pretty agile. Um, so his addition to the starting lineup, I thought, was uh, something that really has really helped their defense because I think for a majority of that game against the Raptors, the reason they played so well is because Jeff Green was uh, <coughs> he was guarding Demar Derozan into shooting some threes, uh, which obviously Derozan's not always comfortable with, um, and uh, surprisingly uh, in that game. I'm not, I can't remember whether or not George Hill played in that game, but for whatever reason, uh, Kyle Lowry only had five points. So it so kind of seems to me, uh, so it, since March, uh, in, in the past few weeks, basically, I think in the past two or three weeks, uh, Kluben has beaten Toronto twice. So I think that is uh, that sort of gives them some confidence, I guess. Or it, gives, it kind of, I guess, sharpens the psychological edge that a lot of people think that LeBron has over uh, the Raptors, you know, obviously since he's basically owned them since... They broke out and won 56 games two years ago. Um, I think in that span, I think Toronto has only beaten them, I think, four times, playoffs and regular season combined. Oh, wow. <laughs> He's, I think, yeah, it's in their last 17 games, LeBron and company have won 13 of the 17. Um, and that might now be 14 of 18. So Wow. Uh, well, that's a crazy statistic right there. And I think that plays into... Uh... Something that all NBA analysts are trying to figure out right now is if the Raptors are the real deal or if they're the next uh, 60 win Hawks. You know, like they're just going to make it to the conference finals and get wiped out by LeBron again. Yeah, that that is it's a valid question. Um, I mean, I personally believe that uh, it was weird to me because, you know, originally they were on pace to win, I think, somewhere around 63 games. Uh, now they're. They're they have they're fifty nine and twenty two right now. So assuming they win their next, they'll win sixty games. But they I, they've definitely fallen off and sort of come back down to earth uh, in recent weeks. They had a, they lost to the Celtics, uh, you know, with no Kyrie Irving, who's now out for the playoffs. Uh, they dropped uh, a couple games to some poorer teams. Uh, I think some of the lower uh, the lower seeded Western Conference teams. I think Utah or, or Utah's now they're not lower seeded anymore, but at the time they were. I think they lost a game to Utah. They lost, uh, and just some here are their games where they could have won, but just ended up not winning. So um, I think they lost to the Hornets. So uh, I, I think maybe the Raptors are sort of at a point in the season where they probably thought that if they played, like, I think maybe what they were thinking was that if Cleveland, uh, you know, I, I basically feel as though they were probably like realizing like we could probably beat anyone in the East except Cleveland. So there's like, or like uh, not, not that necessarily, but they probably fear the Cleveland out of anyone. Right. So they wouldn't be worrying too much about how many games they are winning or what seed they would, because they ultimately they only have one team to worry about. And if they were going to get to the finals, which is their goal, they would have to go through Cleveland no matter what, regardless of what round it is. Because I mean, if you, if you beat them in the second, if you face them in the second round versus facing the conference finals, it's really not going to be that much of a difference. Um, so I think that they probably, uh, and now that they've clinched the one seed, it really doesn't matter how many games they win because 
they're going to have home court advantage throughout the Eastern Conference playoffs. Um, I guess the only, the only, I guess way that they would uh, probably feel as though they're have to really go all out in this last game is that uh, Golden State has a a current record of fifty eight and twenty three. Yes. So uh, it basically so if Golden State finishes fifty nine and twenty three, and then Toronto also finishes fifty nine and twenty three. I believe an NBA Finals matchup between Golden State and Toronto would go to Golden State because I think they won the season series. Yeah, um, I'm looking at the tiebreakers now. Yeah, I, I believe. Yeah, so uh, I guess that would sort of be the only thing to worry about with them. But, you know, that's that's a long way away from right now. So I don't really think there's anything particularly to worry about with the Raptors, but I don't think there's not much to be excited about either. I think ultimately what will happen for them is they'll, they'll probably be – They'll probably, honestly, in, depending on how the seeding goes, uh, depending on tonight's game and tomorrow's game for Philadelphia, if Philadelphia winds up with the four seed and Joel Embiid is back healthy, I could see Philadelphia beating Toronto in the second round. But uh, as it stands right now, I, I, I'm fairly confident Toronto would lose in the second round to Cleveland because uh, Cleveland is currently the four seed. So uh, either way, you know, I, I think the way that it'll work is if Cleveland is the three seed, or if Cleveland is the three seed, then Toronto has a chance of getting to the conference finals. But if Cleveland is the four seed, then I think uh, Toronto should say goodbye to their season. <laughs> well, that's, of course, assuming that the Celtics don't get upset at this point. You know, just for the rash of injury, injuries they've had all of a sudden with Marcus Smart being an ongoing concern, Kyrie Irving just being gone for the rest of the season, Gordon Hayward not coming back. It, se- it seems like they're, and they're at a real uh, point where they have to worry about facing a team like the Bucs or even the Heat. And like, just when I worry, are they even going to make it out of the first round if that happens? Because if you look at their team, it's outside of that. You've got, what, Al Horford? Maybe yeah. Yeah, a couple uh, forwards? Like, just they don't have good <laughs> options. Basically, the core that the Boston Celtics are relying on for the playoffs is uh, Jalen, uh, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, and Al Horford. Yeah. Uh, and I guess uh, Shane Larkin and <laughs> like Marcus Morris. So, um, oh, but what's interesting, and Terry, I, What's interesting to me, Terry Rozier is a player who brings this to my attention. Is that uh, Brad Stevens to me has now shown me, uh, in you know, in my viewership this season of the Celtics, that he really is able to kind of like Mike D'Antoni. Whenever he gets a point guard who buys into his system of, you know, seven seconds or less, shoot this, shoot threes and layups, and we will put pick and roll in isolation. Like so, he's been able to make Raymond Felton, Jeremy Lin, uh, you know, James Harden, Steve Nash. In the same way that he's been able to get all these point guards to succeed, I feel Brad Stevens is able to kind of do the same thing because Terry Rozier, all of a sudden, now that he's been implemented into Kyrie Irving's role as uh, the number one scorer on the team, he's been playing phenomenally. Um, there have been some joking memes comparing him to Michael Jordan because he has the exact same, uh, like the, their jump shot and free throw look exactly the same. Uh, he's been putting up some really good numbers. So um, I. I wouldn't be surprised if Boston loses in the first round simply because they don't have enough talent and they don't have a lot of experience because I guess Kyrie and Al Horford were kind of the only two people who really did. Yes. Um, and now they would just be Al Horford who's sort of, you know, he's past his prime at this point. So if the, if they lose, I won't be surprised. But at the same time, if they win, uh, I believe uh, I wouldn't be that surprised either because I do have a lot, a lot of confidence in Brad Stevens as a head coach. And because he's, you know, they're probably, they're going to win probably 55 games uh, and, the fact that Kyrie probably, you know, I think at the, when it's all said and done at the end of the season, I think he'll have, he'll have ended up missing, I think, somewhere close to 20 games. I'm not exactly sure on that. Uh, but regardless of, uh, you know, I think Brad Stevens is sort of making a late push for the Coach of the Year award because, you know, Dwayne Casey has sort of fallen off. Uh, the Raptors have been losing a lot while the Celtics have been winning a lot more. Um, so 
but the, I mean, coach of the year is a different discussion altogether because you know there's Quinn Snyder, Mike D'Antoni, um, <clears throat> Brad Stevens, uh, and Brown, and don't forget about our favorite Terry Stotts. Terry Stotts, of course, three seed in the West. Can't forget about that. Yeah. And it is an interesting point that the Celtics don't have a lot of playoff experience outside of Kyrie Irving, who's now gone, and Al Horford. But it seems like the story for the Eastern Conference right now heading into the playoffs is just not having a lot of playoff experience. If you look at the teams that really do have playoff experience, you're talking about the Raptors and the Cavs and maybe the Wizards. And that's pretty much it. Like the Pacers, they don't have a lot of, they have no playoff experience, basically, aside from being an eight seed once in a while. You got the Bucks, they're used to just first round exits. At the 76ers, who are uh, literally making history for their uh, top four players, having literally no playoff experience. So, and, and like the JJ Redick really having the most on the team. So, it, it's a good point that like the Celtics are going to be suffering in that, but at the very least, they will have uh, plenty of company in their misery. Yeah, that is that is true. The Eastern Conference, I think, is at this point, it's it's really just a matter of. Like to me, so honestly, the way that I've been watching the NBA the last few weeks, it honestly feels like it's Cleveland or Philadelphia. Like I, I don't see Toronto making the NBA Finals, and I don't see Boston making the NBA Finals. Um, and I guess you know you can never really count out the Warriors because they don't have Steph Curry, but it doesn't really look like they're going to be making the Finals either this year. But uh, that's that's very surprising to say, obviously, given how things looked coming into the season. You know, uh, so yeah. that will be interesting to see. And I'm so fascinated to see how the Jazz look in the playoffs because right now they're and they've just been on an absolute tear for the entire second half of the season. And like Gobert's been amazing, and they've had awesome scoring, and like their scheme is holding up really well. I'm really curious to see how it first of all looks in the playoffs, and second of all how it fares against a team. Well, I can't even predict playoff matches at this point. You got anyone from the Pelicans, the Spurs, the Thunder, or even the Timberwolves at this point that they could be playing. But all at least for five through seven seeds, those are all teams that like to grind it out as well. So it'd be really interesting to see how they match up against them. And I really would love to see a matchup between the Jazz and the Warriors, even though at this point I, I almost feel like the Jazz would be a favorite in that matchup. That's for sure. Also, um, if you don't mind, at some point I would love to discuss with you, um, you know, whether it's today or ne- next podcast, I would like to hear your thoughts on whether or not you think uh, Donovan Mitchell's rookie season is getting a little bit too much praise. Because I have I've started to believe that a lot – like. No one is really looking at how poorly they played before Rudy Gobert re-entered the lineup, and I feel like a lot of I feel like a lot of their success is like obviously Donovan Mitchell's been amazing as you know the leader of their offense in terms of scoring, but I feel like he's getting a little bit too much praise because obviously you have a great playmaker in Ricky Rubio making a lot of plays for him, and then you have Rudy Gobert who's probably going to be the defensive player of the year uh, unless of course they take it away from him for not having played enough games, but. I feel like the Utah in general deserved a lot of credit rather than just Donovan Mitchell. So I feel like, you know, they have a coach of the year candidate, defensive player of the year candidate. Um, they have a good playmaker. They have good shooters. Um, so that's just something that maybe we can discuss later on. Yeah. And uh, just to uh, preview that, because I think if we uh, get through the playoff matchups too quickly in, uh, in uh, Friday's recording, where we're literally just going to go through Every single matchup that's in the playoffs, what we predict, like the players to watch for, the players that are underperforming, and just like the team's expectations, regardless if they win in the playoffs or not. If that doesn't go long enough, we're going to just go through NBA awards again. And if you remember from our previous discussion in the NBA All-Star podcast, I was really down on Donovan Mitchell, and I still really am. The advanced metrics still aren't crazy about him, and just to put some perspective into it, uh, by win shares at least, uh, Derek Favors and Joe Ingles are both uh, rated higher than 
uh, Donovan Mitchell, as well as Ricky Rubio, who's tied with him. And uh, in terms of uh, uh, BPM, obviously being a box score plus minus, uh, you have, uh, let's see, uh, who, who's above him? Uh, you got Gobert above him, you got Ingles above him, you got Favors above him, you got Cephalosha above him, and you got R Rubio. So I'm not really that much of a fan of Donovan Mitchell. I think he uh, takes a lot from... Uh, Kobe in terms of how he plays, and I'm not crazy about how Kobe plays. I think he's just uh, a bunch of scoring, and that's really it in, in an NBA right now where you have to fill up the entire uh, stat sheet. That's why we like LeBron James so much. He does everything for the team. So I, if Donovan Mitchell can get some assists and some more assists or like maybe uh, get some rebounds or uh, you know, do a little more on defense, I really uh, you can make a case for him for me. But uh, when you got a player like Ben Simmons, it seems ridiculous that uh, Donovan Mitchell's even getting talked about as much as he is, and it really shows how much just NBA analysts and like fans in general don't appreciate defense and don't want to talk about defense when someone like Gobert or even Derek Favors is playing fantastic defense this season, and like it's just not talked about because it's not as uh, exciting or it's not as much. Uh, it's just not as obvious. Like you only see defense really when it either goes wrong or you like uh, block a shot into the stands or whatever. Yeah, honest. And uh, another point on that, uh, I feel as though another point that's really not being talked about enough, like, you know, sure, Donovan Mitchell is scoring 20, 20 points per game, close to 21 points per game. Yes, he is. You know, he's the first rookie since Carmelo Anthony to lead a playoff team in scoring. He is all of those things, but at the same time, no one's talking about the fact that, you know, obviously he's a rookie, so this isn't like a huge deal, but it's not like he's been the most efficient sport in the world either. Like he's, you know, I think he's somewhere around 41%, maybe 42% from the field, um, you know, which... That's, you know, for a rookie, it's good. But in terms of like when Ben, like when you, like, well, like you said, you have Ben Simmons, who despite the fact that he doesn't take jump shots, you can't take away the fact that he's averaging 16 points per game. Uh, you know, so he's averaging about four less points per game, but he's shooting about, I think, more than 10% better. Uh, so I think it's just something that uh, people are overlooking a little bit. Yeah, and like if you look at his uh, assist to turnover, he's got about a 1.3, and I'm trying to pull up Chris Paul's right now. Obviously, he leads the league, but. I just want to see the exact number so I can have some method of comparison. Uh, Chris Paul uh, I, I have to imagine he does, unless it's just some random guy who said like five assists or whatever. Uh, yeah, I, Chris Paul is, I think, historically, he's one of the better ones. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ooh, he, he, yeah, 3.2. He really, oh, Chris Paul is 3.2 this year? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he's crushing it. Yeah, he, Chris Paul is very, I mean, he's, he's historically good at that. Uh, and, you know, it goes to show that he can do it regardless. I mean, He's averaged like 11 assists and I think like two turnovers before, which is, that's incredible. Oh, yeah. And I don't understand why Chris Paul doesn't get more credit for the amazing job that he does on teams. I think you can make a valid uh, case right now that he should be considered six man of the year uh, favorite. Like just, especially in a year when like there isn't a lot of other uh, contenders for that. Well, I think what's interesting, well, Chris Paul starts the games. Oh, he does? But, well, the way that it's done, but I, I, this is an interesting point. The way that it's done is that Chris Paul, Chris Chris Paul and James Harden start the game together, and they play briefly together. But then, oh, okay. like after a couple minutes, he he takes Chris Paul out, and then he lets James Harden run alone, and then he takes James Harden out, and then he lets Chris Paul. But they don't like basically. What's interesting about Houston, and which makes them so interesting, is that Chris Paul and James Harden don't necessarily play together; they just take turns. Really. Okay. Well, that's what I so, get for not watching but, the games. So what's interesting is what I think is interesting is, do you necessarily have to come off the bench at the start of a game to be the best bench player in the league? You know what I mean? Because, like for example, like 
in 2012 when James Harden was the sixth man of the year. Like he was playing 33 minutes, but he only he won the award because he was like he would not have won the award if he wasn't playing that many minutes because he like he was playing starter minutes, but he was just because he started the games off the bench, he was able to win the award. So I feel like criteria maybe for it should be a little bit different. Like maybe you should maybe put like a cap on how many minutes you can play. Like, you know, you know what I mean? Because like, if, if like, like, on, like the way that it would be done is like, if, if Teron Lou just chose to bring LeBron into the game after one minute of action and he just plays the rest of the game, then he would win six man of the year. Yeah. So, you know, maybe, maybe you, you could have a point in terms of like, Chris Paul is the best, like he's the best player who plays the best when he comes off the bench, which I guess you could make an argument is more of what six men of the year is about. Yeah, and I do appreciate you trying to save my face for not knowing that uh, Chris Paul started the games. I actually thought he you know, came off the bench like two minutes in, like the LeBron argument you were mentioning. But no. Uh, yeah, no, obviously not. Uh, but yeah, like uh, that'd be an interesting thing if you just had to hey, go like to the best player in the league who averages less than like 24 minutes a game or something. But I think that would kind of defeat the purpose of the six man of the year. And at that point, you should just make a different award. Yeah, I mean, I feel like six man of the year is kind of an it's a, it's a weird award anyway because I mean you can really sort of tailor it to however you want because if you just chose to start a bench, if you just chose to move a star player to the bench, you would win the award every year. Yeah. But, so. Yeah, so that's six men of the year. Uh, obviously, the Rockets are still playing incredible. I think we've addressed them in almost every uh, podcast so far, so I think we can uh, save the audience's ears from that one. Um, let's see. Uh, have you seen anything in the Trailblazers games that have uh, shown why they're uh, on a losing streak or is it just, just they're cooling off from that incredible run they were on? I think they're cooling off, but I think also at the same time they're sort of realizing that, I mean, they will either be three or four, and it doesn't matter which one they are, because if they're three, then they'll play uh, six in the first round. Like, I guess, it, it, I mean, I guess if you're the three seed, the only advantage you would have is that you like you might be able to play a rusty Steph Curry in the second round, but you know, given how second round matchups have went for Portland versus Golden State in the past, namely 2016 when Steph Curry was coming off an injury, yes. the same injury, I feel like it would just be a little bit too close. Uh, it'd be too close to history for Portland to be comfortable with that situation. So I feel like if they if they if they if they drop to the fourth seed and they end up playing Houston in the second uh, second round, I feel like they probably would be just as comfortable as that uh, with that as playing Golden State in the second round because. It's at this point for all of those teams, just pick your poison. Do you want to play four all stars, two of them being Kevin Durant and Steph Curry, or do you want to play the lethal shooting of Houston with their amazing everything? And they're like Houston, what's unique about Houston, I guess, is that Houston has an elite Hall of Fame caliber point guard for 48 minutes every game, whereas Golden State will have four all stars, two on the court at some point, all the time. So. Yeah, and it is a, it really a pick your poison. Personally, if I was the Terry Stotts right now, I'd be hoping to face the Rockets just so I could get something different. I think like it's the same thing with the Raptors. Like they would prefer to face the Cavaliers still in the conference finals than the second round because they you're just not confident you can actually beat that team. And it's always a, a problem of stylistic matchups, really, where like the Warriors, uh, and compared to the Trailblazers, it's just a better version of the Trailblazers. They have better team defense, and they have better point guard play. They have better shooting, and like it's just you know, we're going to beat you at your own game. But at least for the Rockets, you're getting like a different kind of matchup. Like obviously, the Rockets are still very guard uh, heavy, but at least it's not the Warriors in their eyes. Yeah, that's. I mean, they've they've, they've played them the last two years. Uh, 
in the playoffs. They played them in 2016 in the second round, and they played them last year in the first round. Uh, and the t- the totals of the series have been uh, eight wins for Golden State and one win for Portland. So, oh my god. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, no, yeah. not that. I I don't know if you just saw this breaking news. Apparently, Dirk's coming back next year. Oh, good. That's always good news. My favorite player. Huh. Yeah, look at that. Huh. I think it's weird. I, I don't really see why he's still playing, but I, because like I would understand it if he was playing on a team that's like you know like like if he was playing on like Utah or, or not Utah. If he was playing on like Denver, right, and like they're really close to making the playoffs, and he wanted to see maybe where they could go next year. That'd be a good idea, but I mean, Dallas is not going anywhere, so I don't really even see the point of them playing. Yeah, I agree, especially coming off of an injury. It seems like it, his health is only going to deteriorate from here, and he's only going to become a worse player, and it's not like uh, the Mavericks are going to get any better. Maybe Mark Cuban gave him like a pitch where he's like, oh, uh, this was just a one-year tank like he's been saying all year, and we're going to make a playoff push next year. But I mean, who on earth is going to fall out of the Western Conference playoff picture? I think honestly, the reason I, I feel like the only real reason that it could be is I feel like he wa- he probably wants to own the record for uh, most years played with a single franchise. That's probably what it is. I feel. Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. Because yeah. currently Kobe Bryant holds the lead. They're tied right now with twenty, but next year Dirk would take a he would be in solo lead with uh, twenty one years with the Mavericks. So he'll probably retire after next year. That'll probably be it. Yeah, it is interesting though that you know, for this entire year he's been like, oh, I just wanted to have uh, twenty next to my name or whatever. And he's like, oh, twenty years sounds uh, really nice, but yeah, no, that's surprising to say the least. I wasn't expecting that. The only, I mean, my only, honestly, the only thing that I would refute about it is I really don't want to see his career statistics go down because they're already not like, like hey, at the end of his career, like when people look back on his statistics they'll show worse numbers than the player that he actually was. He was actually a much... I feel like Vince Carter is also doing that to himself in a way. Like, the longer they play... Like, because unless you're LeBron and you're able to be so good late into your career, you're really not going to be helping your numbers. Same thing with Kobe Bryant. Like, if Kobe Bryant had retired in 2013 or 2014 instead of 2016, he wouldn't have had those two years where he, you know, dropped down the statistics. And I think Dirk has been doing that since probably about 2014 now as well. So... Right, actually, not really. He he averaged 18 points per game a couple of years ago. So for the past two three years, he's been doing it. But regardless, I mean, it is what it is. At the end of the day, you know, there are always going to be people who remember who will try and convince people that he was really good, but his statistics probably won't bear it out. Yeah, and that's the argument right there for why uh, players should be valued based on like a their career arc. So like you uh, have like at least in baseball, how they do it for like Hall of Fame voting, you have like. You measure them based on their overall career uh, performance and advanced metrics, and then you value them based on their uh, the seven year uh, cons- like the seven consecutive years in their career where they were the best. So, like for someone yeah. like Dirk, that would uh, boost him up a bunch, and then you would also have the career numbers, and you could look at them separately instead of just having the career numbers and be like, oh, well, maybe he wasn't that good in his peak. Yeah, I mean, Dirk is. I mean, he's a he's a very interesting case. I feel like because, in my opinion, he's. In, in my personal opinion, he's the fourth best power forward of all time. There would be ahead of him, I would put Tim Duncan, obviously, Kevin Garnett, Carl Malone, and then him. Um, uh, I, I mean, it's just to me, he's just such a unique player because, you know, we talked about this a couple podcasts ago, I believe, yeah. where he was sort of, you know, he was the introduction of the European style and finesse big man and shooting threes from the outside, stretching the floor, uh, the post fadeaway. You know, he, he sort of added all these new elements that people hadn't really seen before. And I think he's one of the more underappreciated legends. Uh, in the league, because obviously now you kind of have Kevin Durant, who's everyone is now. It's like the best seventh foot shooter in NBA history is obviously Kevin Durant, but 
you know, people don't really give Dirk the credit for kind of paving the way for that sort of thing because I feel like without Dirk Nowitzki in the league at the time Kevin Durant came into the league, people probably would have been like, no way, dude, you're way too tall to be a small forward. You have to play center. But, you know, Dirk kind of, I guess Dirk kind of helped make it more positionless because, like, he, he did never really played outside of either power forward or center himself, but he he kind of helped the positionless thing because often you would have to change his defensive assignment to maybe be a small forward because, you know, you'd have to get someone more perimeter-oriented to come out and guard him. So uh, before, obviously, Steph Curry's revolution with the three-point shot took place, I think Dirk should should be given some credit for what he did. Oh, yeah, and it's, it's very interesting that uh, that isn't done at all. Obviously, uh, most uh, NBA analysts don't do that for players in their uh, current career, and like, not their current career, in the present, just because it's uh, very hard to uh, value what's happening right in front of you. You get value out of uh, evaluating things in the past. And I was just thinking, I was just thinking about that the other day, honestly. Where, like, it's it's sad that like we can't appreciate things that are happening in the present. That like, whenever we're evaluating things, we always have to evaluate something, evaluate something that's over that like already happened. And I mean, the only way to uh, do that otherwise is to look ahead to the future and like use predictive measures. But it, it's it essentially never happens. That like we uh, ev- evaluate something in the present unless you have something like a. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Uh, Devin Booker going off for like 70 points, then you can start to uh, appreciate it. But then obviously you're missing the 50 points before he was, and they started the countdown. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'll, I, exactly. Like I understand what you're saying. I, I feel like one of the like I would probably say the only two things I think that are really appreciated that are still really current. Like you know, I think people are starting to now appreciate LeBron's longevity because of how well he's been playing in season 15. That's probably one thing. Um, even I mean, but that even that is a little late because I think people should have been realizing like, dang, like he's he's 32 years old and he's been playing this way for however long. So I think that's starting to get a little bit more appreciated. And you know, if he continues playing like this into year 16, 17, 18, hopefully then people will probably acknowledge it more. And uh, I think Steph Curry as well. I think 2016. I think they they were they were mo- most people were kind of on it about how he was changing the game. But uh, for the most part, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, and uh, on the subject of uh, LeBron James, like uh, not like see uh, longevity. Are you happy to see that he's uh, really pushing to play eighty-two games this season? And do you think it's smart for him to uh, be leading the league in uh, minutes played? I really don't understand why. Um, like I really don't understand why he wants to. Um, like to me, it kind of seems like what's the point? Because like he's never done it before, and it's never really been an issue that he hasn't before. Like. You know, people have always complained about, like, oh, he rests this game, he rests that game. But, like, no one's ever really came out and called him out for not playing 82 games. Like, it's never been, like, who does play 82 games? And, like, I think, like, DeAndre Jordan and, like, Tristan Thompson are, like, the only players who consistently play 82 games. And now that's not even a thing anymore. Yeah. So, um, I guess maybe he just wants to do it because it's so rare for people to play 82 games now. Um. I can't really see an explanation for it, but I don't have a problem with it because, you know, uh, knock on wood, hopefully, you know, LeBron doesn't really seem to get hurt ever. So I guess he's really not doing himself a disservice by doing it. But, um, I mean, playing whether or not he does did or did not, I, I mean, if he had played 72 or if he played 82, people would still be talking about how great he is. I don't think people would really be harping on, oh, he's missed 10 games. Like, you know, Steph Curry has missed, like, I think nearly 40 games now, but he's still probably going to make an all-NBA team, which is absurd, but yeah, it's going to happen. And uh, I, I'm actually just looking through his uh, his basketball reference page right now, and I, I was amazed to see that uh, this season his uh, 37.2 minutes uh, per game is actually the third worst in his career. 
unbelievably. And, like this really speaks to how many minutes he plays this season. Like even his worst is worst is uh, 35.6, which was two years ago, and like he has for his career highs. Like in his uh, third year in the NBA, he was averaging 42.5 minutes per game over yeah, 79 games. Yeah. I mean, it's absurd. With the, I mean, the fact that he was doing, I mean, like, I doubt that there's a player who averaged close to 43 minutes per game in the third season and was still averaging 40, uh, 40, uh, or 37 minutes in their 15th season. Yeah. Uh, another, another interesting thing, I heard this today about LeBron's longevity. I think this goes to speak on it too. Uh, six, six players who were on the Miami Heat's roster, the last game that LeBron played in Miami, so in, in 2014, six players on the roster. It was their last game in the NBA. Wow. So it really goes to show that, like, six players on that team, like, that was their last game, and LeBron is still here doing the things. Like, he's probably going to make the finals again, just like he did then. It, it's just interesting to see how many players have came and went. Um, like, on a, in, a, in a couple of years, like, I, I really think he's, like, you know how, like, there's only, like, two players left from, like, the 98 draft class? Yeah. Like, I feel like it's Vince Carter and Dirk. Like, all these players from like the 2000, 2001, like all these guys are probably pretty close to being out the door. Like Melo seems pretty washed up. D-Way doesn't seem this, like he's good, but you know, he probably won't play 20 years or anything. Um, you know, uh, there's uh, Tyson Chandler's kind of just doing nothing with his career right now. Uh, then there's uh, Pau Gasol, who's pretty old now. Like those are all the players who, you know, came in around the same time as him or before him. And I just think it's interesting to look at the 2003 draft class and realize that, you know, like the two best players from that draft class are now Kyle Korver and LeBron. Uh, debatably, obviously, whether or not you think Kyle Korver is actually better than D Wade, which you know he's not really from a talent perspective, but in terms of effectiveness, I guess you could argue it. But yeah, uh, whatever. They, like it's just it's just something interesting to see, I guess. But that's an interesting dynamic to me how Kyle Korver and LeBron are on the same team and. Uh, you know, the only reasons for it are that Kyle Korver has such, he has a, a literally like a timeless game because all he has to do is catch the ball and shoot the ball. Um, and, you know, obviously LeBron's been able to do this with his athleticism and all that. Yeah, and just as a reminder for like how far back 2003 was, uh, for some for some perspective, uh, Udonis Haslam, one of the players who amazingly hasn't retired yet from that team, he was drafted in 2002, actually. Yeah, that's uh, insane. He's, I mean, I saw a highlight of him this past week. Or not even a highlight. He, just, he made a free throw and then he shushed the crowd. <laughs> like that, that That's was a highlight for him. For him, yeah, it was a highlight. Like the fact that he was still like on, like like the fact that he was being shown on social media was shocking to me. I was like, Odonis has him still. Like he's one of like, why is he still playing? Like, you know, yeah. um, Kendrick Perkins is now playing again. He was yeah, he's now playing for the Cavs. Huh? Now yeah, playing, yeah, yeah. Three players from the O three draft class play on Cleveland. Yeah, they, it seems like they can't get over uh, adding veterans. I, I, I would have thought they'd learned their lesson over uh, free agency and uh, eventually pushing them all out the door at the trade block. But it, it looks like they're starting to bring them back. I think the only reason for Kendrick Perkins being on the roster, however, is that he, I think he can give, I guess, sort of just some locker room presence uh, to the younger guys because. You know, he played on that championship team for the Celtics in 2008, and, you know, he's he's 33 years old, so, you know, he, he can, I guess, kind of give them some guidance about the playoffs because he has put in the playoffs a lot, but I don't think he's going to be getting any minutes ever. No, let's hope not. Hopefully it'll just be like a... a who was a, the guy who uh, made, James like... Jones. Yes, James Jones, hopefully, yes, yeah, one of those LeBron ones. running mate for the longest time, for yeah. no reason. Yeah, now, now he's... Uh, Crying on the Suns or wherever, yeah. get the lottery pick. Definitely, 
they have the best odds for number one. Yeah, and they're like two games worse than anyone else in the NBA right now. Yep. Uh, speaking of uh, player ages that I found really surprising, uh, apparently Lance Stevenson is only 27 years old. Yeah, I knew that actually. Lance Stevenson, when he was famous for blowing in LeBron's ear, was like a young, like, he was like a young up-and-coming NBA player. Like, he was like 23, yeah. 24. No, I can't and believe that. Yeah, he's quite young. I think it's, it's interesting to look at players like that because you. Yeah, I feel like I always either expect players to be much older, or not much older, but significant, like a little bit older, or a little bit younger than they were. Like, Chris Paul is still, I think, only 31 or 32. Like, the way people talk about him, you'd think he's like 34 or 35 or something. Yeah. Dwayne Wade, I think, you know, he's the same age as all those guys, but he's like 36. Melo's 33. He looks older than that. Um, DeAndre Jordan looks older, but he's like 27 or 28. Uh, Steph Curry's thirty. He looked does not look thirty. I don't think. Oh, he really? Still, yeah, he looks like playing like twenty six. Yeah, something. So, and that's a fascinating thing about the NBA. If you actually play well, you can have a really long career. And like Maybe, that's a yeah. really that's a really nice thing about the sport when you compare it to something like uh, the NFL, where like you're you, know, you play really well and like you still only have like a ten year career. Like, well, hockey's different. Like hockey, you play forever. Even baseball, where like, you have like a five-year career, and like the, everyone's just getting shuffled in and out all the time. And in basketball, yeah, like you see a ton of these veterans that are playing forever. And I'd be curious to see the average average uh, tenure of like an NBA player because it doesn't seem like there's too many of those uh, guys that are just uh, like the twelfth man on the bench and then like they're in and out. But I guess you wouldn't really remember them anyways. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's just a weird thing about age in general because, like, when you look at these guys, like, you don't think that, like, like you, I don't think anyone could legitimately look me in the face and tell me that they thought that there was only a one to two year age difference between Steph Curry and Chris Paul. Like, yeah. Steph Curry is thirty and Chris Paul is like thirty two. I don't think anyone really thought that. Or, you know, even looking back, like, I get like Kyrie Irving, I think is twenty four and Steph Curry's thirty. Like, who thought that they'd have a six year difference in age? But it's a weird thing. Yeah, no, it is definitely, and uh, apparently the average uh, length of an NBA career is 4.8 years. E e even though that sounds short, think about that. That's five years for the average NBA player. To have their prime? And no, just for their total career. Like, that's looking at every NBA player and, like, the average career length. And that's with it being... Average length? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Yeah, 4.8 years. That's the average length of an NBA career? Yeah. Wow, that's absurd. Yeah, like, that's really good, especially when you consider that, like, the majority of players are going to be washed out, so, like, that's going to be weighing it down heavily, so if you just looked at it, like, as an interquartile range, obviously, I can't pull that up right now, but I would have to imagine it'd be way higher. Yeah, and then, obviously, you also have the people weighing it down, because, like, there, there are players who only play for a small number of years, because they, obviously, they don't make it, or they have some sort of injury, or yeah. whatever. Like, basically, the entire Memphis Grizzlies team right now. Yeah. Yeah, they, they really fell off. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I, I still can't believe that. I, I wonder if Fisdale could have held it together a little more, but it seems like the ownership is falling apart at this point. They really, they need to make some really big That team, I honestly don't even think, should be a franchise in the NBA. Ooh, that's harsh. Why, why do you think that? I mean, just, just because, like, there's no hope in them attracting free agents. They don't have it. Like, they've won way too much in recent years to get any real talent. Um, now they they finally will this year, but they really they better they better get someone good in the draft and they better sell him really well. They better get him to buy in completely. Like they to me they still seem like they're maybe five years away from being relevant again. 
Yeah, and that's the bizarre thing, though. Like, they were able to hang on so long. And I, I am curious as well if they start having players leave for free agency. It doesn't seem like it because they have such a great, uh, uh, free, uh, just a great culture. But who would have thought that someone like Zebo would leave? Someone like, uh, who else? Vince Carter. Yeah, Vince Carter, Jeff Green. Uh, Tony Gasol was on the trading block earlier. Yeah, like Gasol. He seems like a prime candidate to get uh, shipped off or whatever. Like Conley, a, but the thing is, Conley is there for four more years. He's... No, he's per- he's perfectly healthy, happy uh, getting the max contract. Yeah, I just hope they can get him. Oh, maybe if they can get him uh, a ready to play NBA player with the, with a good pick in the draft, maybe maybe we'll see a turnaround. But at this point, the problem now isn't even about the fact. It's not even about that. The problem now is the West. Like, who are you going to take out of the playoffs next year? Minnesota's going to make it next year. Denver will be a year better. Utah will be a year better. Portland will be. I, I mean, Portland, maybe they might fall off because they might realize yeah. that this whole thing with them isn't really working. I mean, somebody's got to. Somebody's going to have to, but I don't see the race in the West getting any easier next year. Unless, of course, you know, there's some bombshell and, you know, Durant chooses not to opt into his deal with the Warriors or something like that. Yeah, but be it as it may, it seems like, at least uh, comparing uh, playoff standings from uh, this year to last year, it seems like it was pretty obvious, like, who was going to fall off. Like, it, it was the Clippers this year that fell off, and they made room for the the Timberwolves within the playoffs, and that was the only real change. Obviously, you had the you know, Grizzlies just falling completely apart, but obviously they had an aging course. Like, you could expect that to some point, but you have to wonder if a team like the Spurs are just going to fall apart completely unless Kawhi can uh, bring a turnaround, if the Thunder are just not going to get things together, because it seems like, frankly, Paul George is having a career year, and then... Like, that's not going to happen again. And then you have uh, Russell Westbrook, who's uh, playing his usual self. Who knows if he's going to start feeling the effects of his intense play. And Carmelo Anthony's not getting any better. Yeah, I mean, Russell Westbrook, to me, he's an interesting player. I really feel like at any point, Russell Westbrook's career could be done. Like, he just puts so much wear on his body. With, like, he is constantly jumping through the air, constantly dunking. His entire game is predicated on athleticism. I just feel like once that starts to go, there's going to be a real problem. Because even the way that he passes the ball... Like, he jumps into the air before he makes all of his passes. He makes errant passes. He doesn't make smart passes. So, you know, Russell Westbrook, unless he is able to get LeBron's secret as as to how he's able to remain so athletic, Russell Westbrook's really going to have some issues. Yeah, and it's very interesting that he he doesn't get injured more. It seems like it's the same thing with James Harden, but at least for him, he doesn't uh, predicate his game on a on a, uh, just athleticism. And at least he's learning to tone down his minutes. I was reading a story where... He's always led the, either led the league in minutes played or been one of those players who yeah, plays yeah. 82 games. But this year he's uh, like 29th in uh, minutes played, and he's been re- rested like seven games or something. Oh, he was he had a slight injury. He wasn't really rest, but yeah, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. And yeah, like, it wasn't like a real injury. It was like, well, I don't want to say not a real injury. It was like a hamstring like pull. Like he, yeah. It was like, you know, he was he was okay. But uh, I think, you know, the addition of Chris Paul really helped him bring his minutes down because he doesn't have to do nearly as much because Chris Paul can literally just do everything that he does. Yeah, no, definitely. And uh, it seems like a, the front office has to absolutely have loved that, that decision. And I'd be fascinated to see uh, what the NBA could have looked like if the Clippers had uh, held it together and like got another piece finally, or if they had just gotten rid of Doc Rivers like two years earlier, if they could have uh, actually made something for themselves in the playoffs. See, I know, I, I doubt that you're a Carmelo Anthony fan, but no. I think, yeah, I'm sure you're not. But this this was an interesting thing when I heard it, because, you know, the, the, the missing piece that, you know, uh, the Clippers were always, you know, that they never had was they never had a good small forward. Like, 
They yeah. had Chris Paul, who is an ideal point guard. J.J. Redick, who is an ideal shooting guard, who could obviously shoot threes. Blake Griffin, a good, strong power forward. And DeAndre Jordan, a room protecting center who could rebound and block shots. Uh, you know, But then they just they always filled in their small forward with just some sort of defensive guy who yeah. like, could just do something. But um, Like for a while, it was Al Farouk Amina. Yeah, yeah. And then, but the, the interesting thing to me was that uh, around before Carmelo Anthony was traded to the Thunder, there were talks about, and this was obviously also before Chris Paul was traded to the Rockets, um, there were talks about Carmelo potentially going to Los Angeles and just filling that spot uh, to give them some scoring. Um, I think maybe, maybe that dynamic could have been a little bit different than what we see in Oklahoma City because, you know, Chris Paul is obviously much better at making players better than Russell Westbrook is. So, you know, maybe we would still see Melo being somewhere around a 20-point scorer uh, and being more open to being a spot-up shooter because, you know, his friendship with Chris Paul is well-documented, so he probably wouldn't have that many issues. So, um, Or, you know, if even if not Carmelo Anthony, maybe they could have still pulled off that trade for Danilo Gallinari and gotten Chris Paul, Danilo Gallinari, J.J. Redick, Lake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan, and just gotten a new head coach and seen, you know, what a lineup like that could have done. Because uh, that could have been deadly. Because, if you re- honestly, if you look back at it, like in 2016 even, like... In terms of talent, like the Clippers had just as much as anybody. Yeah, and I was really disappointed, especially in 2016, to see their uh, uh, playoff team get ravaged by injuries for what, what, what was like the fourth year in a row, just because they actually had bench talent at that point. They had, um, I think, uh, Maurice. Did they have Maurice Spates at that point? And, uh, in which year? Uh, 2016. No, 2016 was Maurice Spates last year in Golden. Oh, okay, so they had somebody on their bench that was really good. They had Jamal Crawford and Austin Rivers, and uh, they had. Uh, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll look up the roster. They had, they had somebody. They had they had players. I mean, Jamal Crawford was the sixth man of the year in 2016, so. Yeah, not, not much defense, but he, yeah, like they could always count for offense uh, off the bench, and that, that was a big thing for them. And obviously, they did end up getting Gallinari, and predictably, he's been injured. So, like, I, I don't know what you'd really expect from that, but. Yeah, like it's it's an interesting thing that the Clippers fell off, and it's really amazing the fact that they were even able to last as long as they did, and they can thank David Stern for that, obviously. But it's just nice to see a team like that that it, that has had like a long history of losing, but not necessarily a bad ownership to back it up. At, at least once they got rid of Donald Sterling, that is. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, the Clippers are they're they're just one of the. They're just they're, they're the typical example of you know a team that just never met, met its full potential. Um, it was just I guess it was a super team just on a smaller scale. Yeah, a failed one at that. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. and it seems like we're in a bit of a super team era. I, I know everyone says that, and like it seems like what's really driving that honestly is just the NBA's been is more talented now than it's ever been. Honestly, I completely agree with you. I don't really think that it's as much of having a super team as it is that everyone has good play. Like, if you really think, if you really, really like think about it, like it, it just kind of depends. Like, do you consider a super team a team with two stars or three? Like, yeah, because like, if, if you consider it as two, then there's like literally almost every team is, or not literally almost every, but like half the teams are super teams. If you think it's two, yeah, and then if if you think it's three, then I guess you know. It's strange, but yeah, because I mean, you got to discredit think, someone like the Rockets, because Clint Capella is not a that guy. No, yeah, exactly. He's no joke. Because I mean, if you if you were, it depends how you describe it, right? Because like if you describe it as being three or more All Stars, then the only legitimate super team that way would be Golden State. But I think what makes more of a super team is having two All Stars or two really good players, and then just having an amazing system. 
because I feel like a system is kind of what makes a super team rather because like Golden State super team is predicated on a system. Miami's was predicated on a pass happy offense and a good defensive scheme system. Uh, the Rockets, obviously, this year they're winning so many games and they're predicated on a system. Toronto this year was able to win so many games because, you know, Dwayne Casey changed up their system. I think a system is kind of what drives making a super team rather than how much talent you have because – and the reason, you know, my, my support for that would be like we've, we've seen so many teams with a lot of talent before that just haven't lived up to full expectations. And that's that's – I can't attribute that to anything other than the fact that the system was bad or the coaching was bad because – like Steve Nash, Kobe Bryant, Dwight Howard all played on the same team together and with Pau Gasol as well. And they were all still relative, like, you know, not all of them were the same player as they once were, but they, oh, one moment, Ryan, I'm getting a call. Yeah, not, not a problem. Yeah. It is a good point that uh, just the, the NBA, only going back to my original point is what I mean. Uh, the NBA is unbelievably talented at this point, and it comes from the fact that the, it, it we're finally getting a payoff for like how popular the NBA was in the 80s because of the Showtime Lakers and the Celtics rivalry that was present with them, and then uh, the Michael Jordan era. So like we're finally seeing all those NBA, uh, all those kids that grew up in that era, finally starting to come into the NBA, and it's really incredible to see all the talent that's uh, bearing fruit from that. Even if you look at even mediocre teams, you have fantastic talent on those teams. You have someone like the Hornets, who definitely aren't making the playoffs this year. They have great players as well. You can look at uh, someone like uh, Nicholas Batum. He's a great role player. You can look at Kemba Walker. He's a top 10 point guard in the NBA. And like obviously it's contentious at that point, but it, I definitely think he is. And Dwight Howard's had a fantastic season. If you look at someone like the Knicks, they've been a sleeper a bit, in just a bit. And like Porzingis is one of the best up-and-comers in the NBA, at least by centers. Uh, Kyle Quinn's been having a really under-the-radar season that nobody's aware of. And like He's he's really uh, set himself up for a great free agency. You know, like even if you look at some of these uh, teams that are uh, just going for, uh, obviously, uh, lottery picks, uh, you have someone like the Lakers. They have a great young core that's coming up, and like a talented young core at that. Obviously, they traded away some of it, but they they still have enough to get thirty four wins. That's not shabby. And you that look, is true. And then you look at someone like the Suns. Like even the Suns, the twenty win Suns, the Suns that are going to have the first pick in the draft probably, if the odds obviously go their way. They have, they have someone like Devin Booker, and they have a ton of offensive talent. And like it's, it's really interesting. Like it, it, this is why I like the NBA is that all of these teams have something redeemable about them. Even someone like the Grizzlies, who we were just uh, bashing a couple minutes ago. Like they, they have Mike Conley, they have uh, Marcus Gasol, they have Tony Allen still, and they have Tyreek Evans, who's been having a great year, at least by my uh, measures. And like it's. It's just really fun to be following a league where like every team is worth is worth watching. Like every team has something redeemable about them. That is all true. And just a slight correction: Tony Allen is on the Pelicans now, but I get your oh, your, crap. your point still stands. He, 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 I mean, it's difficult to follow him. He's not really that relevant anymore. But basically, like I agree with everything you're saying. I think I think that discussion kind of brings about this whole idea that coaching is actually much more important than people think. Um, because, like, without, like, I mean, Golden State was a six-seed team before Steve Kerr came along, and, you know, you hear a lot of people just say, oh, you know, they're so talented, they would have, I mean, but they had all the same players the year before Kerr came, and then the only difference was Steph, I mean, Steve Kerr just, he knew all the right buttons to push with Steph Curry on the offensive end, and he kind of really transformed them, and he, he was able to kind of take what Mike, what uh, Mark Jackson built defensively and kind of unlock them offensively which is, you know, obviously the dynasty that we see today, or the potential one, I suppose, uh, given how this year will go. But, yeah, definitely. 
it's interesting. I think I think what makes a super team is also kind of having you know just not even necessarily an amazing coach, uh, but having a great system for uh, you know for those great players to fall within. Because I mean, I personally believe that if you put like you know that team that I just mentioned, Steve Nash, Kobe Bryant, Pau Gasol, Dwight Howard, if you put them in a system where they all could have benefited, like something that suited all of their style. Um, that could have went really well, but the problem was that they were still playing triangle offense, which really only suited Pau Gasol and Kobe Bryant. Uh, you know, for Steve Nash to have to go from playing seven seconds or less to playing in the triangle is obviously not going to work out well. And Dwight Howard, who played in a system where it was just him and a bunch of shooters around him uh, in Orlando, you know, um, that that obviously wasn't going to work out well either. Yeah, no, like it, it is a good point. Like that, you can't have uh, the kind of turnover that a team like that was having, where you had Steve Nash and uh, Dwight Howard just coming from the just polar opposite uh, game styles. Like where you have them playing basically as fast as they can, and then going into a style where, okay, you go for the rear rotation and you walk down the court and you look at your first guy, and then you look at the second leg. Is the center open? Okay, give him like a uh, ten seconds to back down the other center, and if that doesn't work, you pass out to an open shooter. Like, it, it, it is interesting that they stuck with the triangle as long as they did. That was really a Phil Jackson move, but uh, do you think that the triangle was actually beneficial for uh, in the in the early uh, 2000s Lakers and the early uh, 90s uh, Bulls, or would they have been just as effective with any other system? I personally believe that the triangle is what I would attribute almost all of those team successes to, simply because if you look at a player like Shaquille O'Neal, who played in Orlando with not like who didn't play in the triangle, who played in, you know, a post up only and just you go down there and you get us a bucket with no sort of rhythm, like he struggled. Um, or he didn't struggle necessarily, but he was not able to win at the same level. And, you know, some of that is attributed to the fact that, you know, he played really good teams, but um, he wasn't really able to guess, I guess, step it up to the next level and really win championships until he was put in an offense with another good player. And the triangle, which is what I believe, I think what made them a super team was Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal, and the triangle, um, you know, triangle slash Phil Jackson. And then also with Michael Jordan, you know, uh, this is another point that I make sometimes when, you know, I'm talking about Michael Jordan uh, in general and, you know, how sometimes people overstate all of what he did is that he, prior to Phil Jackson coming and prior to playing in the triangle, Michael Jordan had absolutely no success. Um, he, you know, he was making conference finals and he was getting killed by the Pistons and, you know, he, he was making, uh, you know, he's made Eastern Conference Finals, like I just said. He was making second rounds. He was making first rounds. He was getting to all these places, but he was constantly getting killed. And it's interesting to me is because it's not like Michael Jordan all of a sudden became more talented his eighth year in the league in 1991. Like, that's not what happened. Michael Jordan entered the NBA and averaged 28 points per game as a rookie. Like, he had all the same talent that he had day one. That's another thing that I could say about Michael Jordan is, you know, there's kind of a debate, I guess, is how much he really improved as a basketball player throughout his career. He, did, he really didn't make that many changes to his game, but that's really not here nor there. Um, well, obviously, there's the thing about the post fadeaway, which he developed later on, but in terms of his output and his you know, production, he didn't really improve that much. Um, but, you know, he came into the league averaging 28 points per game, six rebounds and five assists or something like that. Um, and then, basically, he was, he was averaging, you know, numbers north of that or just south of that or somewhere around that. And for all of his career, and nothing really changed and clicked for him until the triangle came along with Phil Jackson, because uh, you know they fired their old coach. Um, I can't, I don't remember his name. Uh, maybe it was Doug Collins. Uh, I could be wrong on that. But 
um, after getting, getting rid of their old coach and getting Phil Jackson in there who implemented the triangle with, uh, you know, uh, you know, Scotty Pippen and Michael Jordan. And then, um, later on Dennis Rodman for the second repeat for the first repeat, I can't remember who their center was, but, um, Tony Kukoc was on the team, you know, after implementing that system, they were really able to take it to the next level and yeah, Doug finally, finally get past all of those other teams. Um, you know, finally get past the Pistons, finally get past, you know, whatever other teams are in the East at the time. I'm sure. I think maybe the Celtics were probably dwindling at that point, but still. Yeah, and I'm trying to pull up right now who their center was for that. It looks like it was... Uh... Luke Longley, maybe, or was he later on? Well? No, no, he was later on. It, it, it looks like it was uh, actually Bill Cartwright. Oh, yeah, Bill Cartwright, yeah, he was on that team. Maybe, and Horace Grant, I think, was later on as well. Yeah, he, he was more of a forward. Yeah, 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 he, that, that's true. But, you know, um, I do I do think the triangle helped tremendously, but I think the triangle, unfortunately, or I guess not really unfortunately, the triangle has become obsolete now because just of, you can't use a big, like, centers are now obsolete because of, the way the shooting is so um yeah the triangle as a whole system i guess i think it would be interesting if maybe there was a coach who could maybe do like a modern twist on the triangle and kind of you know rather than having than what you were saying where like maybe you could do like a backwards triangle where like you you play a certain way inside and then rather than kicking it in you kick it out to a shooter so you know maybe maybe a coach could try and do something and play with that a little bit like a reverse kind of like working it backwards so it goes because you know the triangle went from outside to in Maybe you could, you know, maybe a new coach could try and do it inside to out, since that is how the game is played now. Yeah, and that would obviously require a really good center to do that. That'd be fascinating. To see uh, yeah, you don't. Uh, the only I feel like Jokic could probably do it though, because he's a really. Oh, that'd good be fa- yeah, but that'd be fascinating actually. I, I, Denver, I, Denver could do it. I, I have faith in Denver. Yeah. I think Jokic because they they have so many snipers and they have they have good score. They have such a good offense already. If Mike Malone or. You know, maybe if they get rid of Mike Malone and just kind of figure out maybe someone else who can bring something out of that. Like, if, if they get it going and they get their defense together, then they're, the Denver is going to be really good. Yeah, and it, it is a good point that Mike Malone, he's been there a while and they really haven't gotten many much results with him. Uh, obviously, they've been building up the core ever since Carmelo Anthony left and just that uh, team that made the Western Conference Finals in the 2011 playoffs. But and like they they have not improved on defense basically at all in that entire time. And that's with some talent on defense. Like obviously Jokic sucks on defense. That's not up for debate. But uh, Gary Harris has been a, under the radar a very good defender. Uh, yeah, he's, he's quite good. Frankly, I couldn't tell you a single other uh, good defender on that team. But like single well, player, you know, they, they have some in spurts. There's Will Barton can be a good defender. Uh, Kenneth Reed, when he plays, I'm not even sure what's going on with him. He barely plays anymore. Nurkic, when he was on the roster, Moody, yes, when he was yeah, on the roster. Um, you know, but basically, I think the most interesting thing with Denver is that they, like, if, if, they, if they don't make the playoffs this year, they need to get a new coach because they have, like, they, they, they're literally that team that comes so close every single year and then they get eliminated in one game. Like, I remember last year they got eliminated off of that Russell Westbrook buzzer beater when he, set the triple double record like that was yes. the game that was the game that um they they were eliminated in that game the year before they didn't make it the year before that i don't think they made it um and then this year you know depending on how this game tomorrow goes against minnesota they may not make it so yeah and obviously you're hoping that they don't make it i'm hoping i mean i actually like in terms of me as a timberwolves fan yes i want my team to make it but i think that the matchups would be more interesting if denver made it because if minnesota i was looking at this earlier if minnesota wins then the seventh seed can be anyone between Minnesota, San Antonio, or Utah. Whereas if Denver wins tomorrow, Denver is locked in at the seventh seed. 
which meaning meaning that uh, New Orleans slides down to eighth, I believe. Huh. Yeah, I, I, guess, I guess I would be wrong, but uh, but for sure, if Denver wins tomorrow, they're play Golden State in round one, which I think could be that could be a really fun series to watch. Yeah, that that would be a really interesting series, especially without Steph Curry there. It, it would be a lot fairer, and like you could see a situation where. Like basically, Kevin Durant and Jokic cancel each other out on offense, and just because of how much uh, greater of a load Kevin Durant's going to have to carry on offense, he could cancel him out on yeah. defense, hypothetically. I agree. I think that what's, what's going to be interesting, too, is I think Gary Harris and Jamal Murray put together can outmatch the Warriors' backcourt because yeah. Clay will be shouldering most of it, uh, playing next to Quinn Cook, who has been playing well, but. I don't think that Quinn Cook, given his minimal NBA experiences, is going to be able to, you know, I'm sure he'll play okay, but he's not going to be dropping 30 on anybody in the playoffs. No. With the new defenses and adjustments in the film and all that. Yeah. I don't think any of that is going to happen. So, uh, it'll be, that'll be, that would be an interesting series. Um, and then I guess Paul Millsap, if he plays to his best, can kind of be just like Draymond Green. Without, yeah. the passing, without the same passing set, but the same size, strength, and defense. Yeah, and unfortunately, he's been having a bit of a down year, so that couldn't really be expected at this point, but you never know when you get to the playoffs. Someone who expected some Joe John... He's older, so he might be say He might have been just saving some of his intensity for the playoffs if they make it, because he is a little bit older. He's about 32 as well. He's, he's from an older draft class as well. Yeah, and who was expecting Joe Johnson to go off uh, last year? Like, <laughs> same situation. Yeah, like Joe Johnson won a playoff game for the Jazz single-handedly. Yeah, that was incredible. Yeah, and now he's on the Rockets, so he's another person to worry about. Oh, yeah. Maybe Chris Paul and James Harden are having an off night. Joe Johnson can save them a game. Yeah, and if not, you can bring in Trevor Ariza. You can, I'm sure you can count on something. Eric Gordon. Yeah, Eric Gordon, that's right. Uh, Sixth man of the year uh, last year. Yeah, he's on that team. Uh, they've also got, um, they added uh, Gerald Green, who can you know give you some athleticism and but, you know, we talk about the Rockets all the time. So Yeah, so uh, I think that it covers most of the teams, it looks like. Uh, oh, actually, one thing that I uh, did hear in the lab this week, uh, they made a really interesting comparison between the 76ers this year and the 1994-1995 uh, Magic with uh, Shaq and uh, Penny. Just in terms oh, of... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah just I like that. Yeah, just in terms of like the, having a really uh, good uh, big body and Shaq versus uh, Embiid, obviously Embiid being a bit more mobile, but similar on defense, uh, pretty similar on offense, actually, aside from Embiid occasionally taking the free, but I don't think that's enough of a factor in his game to really be uh, considered. And then like Penny, obviously, uh, being really big on uh, in the assist game, that's something that uh, Ben Simmons does, and like not dominating people in terms of his scoring ability and like not being an isolation player. That it, it seems like him and uh, Ben Simmons play pretty similarly. Obviously, Ben Sim obviously Ben Simmons being taller, but that's going to be the case when comparing him to basically any point guard aside from Magic Johnson. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, yeah, Penny Hardaway is prior to Ben Simmons, he was one player who consistently drew comparisons to Magic Johnson, and obviously now we see that with Ben Simmons. So that's a pretty that's a valid comparison. Um, they they could be that team, um, depending on how Cleveland plays. Uh, honestly, anything is possible in the Eastern Conference, and. Depending on Houston's, you know, d dependability in clutch situations and Golden State's health, the West is also kind of up for grabs. Like, you know, who knows? You know, maybe Kevin Durant takes a bad fall in Game One or something. That'd be horrible. It would be awful. But I mean, I really like. I who oh knows? My God. Like, I mean, what if like? Uh, like oh, Petrulia strikes again. Sorry. Petrulia strikes again. 
Yeah, with Durant, with Pachulia falls on Durant's knee, Clay Thompson is not winning you a six game series or seven game series. No, definitely not. And yeah, third season. He can win you a game, but he cannot. For all the Golden State fans out there, Clay Thompson can win you a game. He cannot win you a series. Yeah, well, you don't think he won them that uh, Trailblazers series uh, last, not last year, two years ago. I uh, personally, I don't because you you mean the year when in two in uh, yeah when, when Steph was out. Yeah, seventy for your uh, seventy win. No, I I attribute that to Steph Curry returning and dropping forty one in the first game. I feel like that's one of those series where he just won the series in the first game. Okay, that's what I mean. I personally, because he set the overtime scoring record and he bellowed on the floor, "I'm back, I'm back." I would attribute it to Steph Curry returning because I also remember him hitting a dagger in Game Five. But um, yeah, I I mean I, I I mean I the only my most vivid Clay Thompson memory is. Clay Thompson snatching the souls of Oklahoma City fans in Game Six that same year. Hmm. My, my memory of him is still at that thirty-seven point uh, quarter, but I think that's a lot of people still. Yeah, well, I mean, the only reason I say that is because I didn't watch the thirty-seven point quarter, and I also um, he uh, he hit eleven threes in that playoff game. Yeah, uh, that was some insane performance as well. But yeah, something with the that uh, 94-95 Magic comparison. Obviously, that was the team that knocked off the Michael Jordan-led Bulls. Him just coming off of his... Yes, no one talks about. And that is absolutely an example of him losing in the playoffs. Everyone wants to make the excuse, oh, he just came back from baseball. But that's his own fault for going to baseball. He could have sat, sat out the season by playing. He took his own risk. And that's you know not, what? No, that's not even... To me, that's not even a valid excuse because he scored 55 like four weeks before that. Yeah, uh, exactly. And uh, it'll be fine. Like his averages, if you look at his career, like stat line, his averages during the like he played, I think like twenty games that year. Yeah, came back in March or something, or not? Maybe not twenty. Maybe like eighteen, seventeen, something like that. He his averages don't they don't vary that much from the rest of his career. Like he was playing exactly the same. Yeah, no, absolutely, and that's the upset that nobody wants to talk about. Everyone's like, "Oh, six and zero, yeah," but I mean, it's that's not good if you didn't even make it to the finals, losing in the was it the second round? Uh, it was the I think it was the conference finals. I'm not sure though, but no, the, that Magic team didn't make the finals. No, they did. They lost to Hakeem Olajuwon. Oh, oh, okay, maybe it was my bad. 1995 uh, Orlando Magic versus Houston. Yeah, Hakeem Olajuwon dominated Shaq. I think that's part of the reason why Shaq wanted to go to the Lakers. But, yeah. Uh, but uh, no, it's it's an interesting thing. Um, um, because I think uh, just this is a little bit sidetracked, but people always talk about how Michael Jordan has such a you know a much better Finals record than LeBron James, but you know LeBron James has a better record in every other round of the playoffs. So yeah, I mean, definitely. Obviously, they don't count as much as the Finals in terms of like, but like the playoffs are still the playoffs. So I mean, LeBron having a better record in every other round should count for something. And I mean, like the, the interesting thing about the, the narrative with LeBron in the Eastern Conference is that people will people the entire year give credit to these teams, but then as soon as LeBron beats them, it's just deemed a cakewalk. Like all of two thousand fifth, or like all of the early two thousands, you know, it was like Celtics, Celtics, and then if LeBron beats them, it's like oh, cakewalk. They were the only good team. And then it's like in in when he was in Miami, there was Boston, and then he beat them, and it was like oh, it's a cakewalk, and then. There was uh, Indiana, and then he beat, and they were like, "Oh, Indiana could get them this year." Paul George, you know, the next this, the next that. Then he beats them, and it's like, "Oh, it's a cakewalk." And then he comes back to Cleveland, and then there's Atlanta winning sixty games, and it's like, "Oh, they, the, Atlanta's going to get them this year." Atlanta's been in the finals, great team, four All Stars. He beats them, and it's a cakewalk. Two thousand sixteen, people are all high on the new Raptors and fifty six wins, and you know, Eastern Conference Finals, getting two games off of them. Then they beat them, and it's a cakewalk. Two thousand seventeen, you have Boston last year, it's a cakewalk, but 
And then this year, people have been the entire year. People have been hyping up Philadelphia and uh, Toronto and Boston. And then you know, I guess Boston's not really fair at this point because they get decimated by injuries. But if LeBron ends up beating Toronto and Philadelphia this year on the way to the finals, even though people talked so highly of them all year, they're just going to say it's a cakewalk when he gets to the finals if he gets to the finals. Yeah, definitely, and that's that's the thing we keep harping on with this uh, argument, and we keep having to harp on it because nobody's really learning from it. It's just the fact that it's confirmation bias, like you, not confirmation bias exactly. It's just you had a, a narrative for the player going in. So you're just going to use whatever he does against him. If he beat the yeah. team, then the play, then the team he faced wasn't that good. If he lost to the team, then oh, and then LeBron wasn't very good. And like it's just you can't. It's a lose lose situation. And like it's just why bother? Like if you want to have that conversation at the end of his career, then uh, do it then when like you can't appreciate his uh, great play. Just it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with appreciating things in the present. It, it, it's fun to bash players, but at a certain point, you're just not being fair to their career, and then like you're not, you're just wasting your time, and like you're, you're just wasting the player's greatness on you. Like he's performing that well, and like in a lot of ways, sports is entertainment. And like the fact that you are getting either so angry about it, or like you're just, it's just the whole argument. It really annoys me, and I, I keep trying to have Zach Sherman on because I want to have that discussion with him. I already know how it's going to end. It's just. B.O. He doesn't look like a superstar, so like he's not a superstar. But I still want to have the conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think the interesting thing is, um, like, like Skip Bayless, for example, he does exactly what you just described. Where, like, currently, what he's been saying on TV these days is he's saying, like, the the super highway is paved for LeBron James to cakewalk to his fourth ring, and he knows that's not true because his team is not that good. He knows that Toronto's gotten better. He knows Philadelphia is a real threat. He knows Boston is well coached. He knows that Houston or Golden State will be healthy when they get to the finals. But he's saying that what what Skip is saying is Joel Embiid is hurt, so he should beat the Sixers. He owns Toronto psychologically, so he should beat Toronto. Golden State had Steph injured right now, so he should beat them. And Houston doesn't have enough talent to be better than him, so he should beat them because he's the best player in the world. But then he turns around and he says Kevin Durant's the best player in the world because he outplayed LeBron in the 2017 Finals, which, I mean, there's, I guess, there's some debate as to how you define outplayed because it's like 34, 10, and 12 versus 35, 5, and 6, which is, yeah. you know... Like, like you're I splitting hairs. It's really, I mean, I think an interesting point about the 2017 Finals for anyone who wants to refute that is that in the minutes that LeBron James was on the court, they won the series, but when he was off the court they got outscored by so much that they lost. Like, he really couldn't even take a break at the final. Like, he really could not. Like, he was playing, like, 43 minutes, and in the five minutes that he was off the court, they would get outscored by, like, 15 points. Yeah. And, like, it would literally be, like, 15. It'd be it, absolutely ridiculous. Like, I, I wish they did, like, more camera pans to him when he was on the bench. And bench, he's just, like, sweating bullets, being like, oh, God, this is more nerve-wracking than being in the game. Yeah, like, no, but actually, like, I mean, at 15 points is not an exaggeration. No, it's and not. Another, yeah, and another thing, since I know you really I know you really enjoy uh, talking about defense, um, I read an article, actually, the other day um, about the difference, what really makes, you know, how LeBron has this thing called playoff LeBron, where he kind of yes. steps up his intensity. <clears throat> so I read an article that kind of discussed that playoff LeBron actually has nothing to do with his offense and is all about his defense, and that he, he goes basically year after year after year in the playoffs, he he consistently transforms his team 
to being either to being a top three defensive team in the playoffs. He individually becomes a top five defender in the playoffs, and he becomes he be, he becomes far and away like by far he becomes individually like the best transition defender, and his team by far becomes the best transition defense in basketball because he constantly like even if he doesn't always get the chase down block like he's always contesting in transition because of his his athleticism his speed his ability to get keep like. Even if you have a head start where LeBron is athletic enough and fast enough and quick enough to get to and, you know, bother your shot. Um, so I think last year was statistic is that in the regular season, Cleveland, I think, was like 18th or they were in the somewhere in the bottom, like lower half of the league in uh, transition defense. But then in the playoffs, they were number one because LeBron himself improved his defensive win shares and transition by like a huge margin. So um, I think it's going to be an interesting thing this year for Cleveland because you know, the talking point this year has never been worry about the offense. It's always been about their defense. Yeah. So I think it's interesting to see how LeBron is going to, if he's able to step up his defensive in, uh, you know, ability this, in the way that he has been. And I personally believe he's able to because, I mean, he hasn't shown any waning in athleticism. He looks just as good as he did last year. So if he was able to do that last year, I don't see why he wouldn't be able to do it this year. Yeah, and, and again, it doesn't seem like it's going to be the first uh, two rounds that are the problem for him, even though those are going to be harder than they have, in, they have been in years past. It's just... Can be. Can he keep it up through the conference finals? Can he keep it up through the finals? Is he going to hit a wall with playing eighty-two games? And like ultimately, you know how I feel about this. I don't think that he will. I think that he does a good job managing his body. He's one of one of the best players in NBA history at managing his body and just understanding where he is. I think I think he doesn't get injured because he understands that kind of stuff. He understands the physiology and something he never gets uh, credit for is he's he's one of the smartest players to ever play in the NBA. Like even though he didn't go to college. Even though, like, he went to, like, some no-name high school and, like, he probably didn't focus on school that much because he was on ESPN every other week uh, just in a high school game. Like, he's an incredibly smart player and, like, he understands the game. And, like, beyond, like, even uh, just ball, uh, like actual, actual basketball IQ, he understands people. And, like, he knows how to manage the psychology, you know, the psychology of the team. And, like, he knows how to bring in uh, new players and, like, uh, boost their game so quickly. Yeah. Like, there's never been another player in NBA history who, like, a, a GM every year can bring in a ton of new players at the trade deadline and by the playoffs. Like, they're all integrated into the system perfectly. Yeah, it never happens. I mean, people always love to speak on the greatness of players like Kobe Bryant. Um, and he's just an example. And I don't know, I'm not meaning to pick on Kobe particularly, but, like, Kobe consistently got new teammates brought in and he was never able to make it work with no. them. Like, it was always like, just go back to Kobe and Gasol or Bust. Like, yeah, just go back to the Steve Nash discussion. Like that yeah, was horrible. I mean, like, uh, he he could have obviously Steve. And, and I think the big issue, also despite the fact that they didn't really have a true system that worked for both of them, was that Kobe was unwilling to let Steve Nash run the offense as much because Kobe was so much of an isolation player, making his own place for his own buckets, whereas Steve Nash is all about making place for other people. Um, you know, Kobe Bryant was not really about all of that. So yeah, and that was a bit of a problem with his uh, psychology, just that, you know, like the so-called Mamba mentality. Where like he had to rule the entire game and like he had to be in control. He had to he had to dribble the ball and the air out of the ball and he had to be the one taking the final shot and like that kind of stuff gets in the way and like it it really speaks to LeBron James's ability that like he doesn't have that kind of stuff in his way. He's willing to play how the team needs him to play. He's willing to step up his defense if the team needs it in the playoff. He's willing to take maybe coast in the regular season if you can even call it that. But with the kind of numbers he puts up in the regular season, if he's coasting, then, God, he's way better of a player than we realize. 
Exactly. And I, I think he is coasting definitely because it obviously like you can look at a player and you can tell what like a player who's athletic as he is, who hasn't waned in athleticism, he's not all of a sudden bad defensively. Like that's not a thing. Like it's literally just a matter of effort. So he I feel like if he consistently put in the effort forward for eighty two days or eighty two games a year, then he could probably be the defensive player of the year if you if you really chose to. Like, I mean, you can't you can you really can't convince me that LeBron James is unable to block you know a, a two shots a game. Like, he, if you really like, I mean, if he committed to it, he could easily do that. If he wanted to average thirty points per game, I definitely believe he could because he's already at twenty eight. He you know he takes like in terms of field goals attempted, he's like I think eighth or ninth or something. But in scoring, he's third. So obviously, if he moved up his shot attempts to maybe fifth or sixth, he could be. He could be the you know the leading scorer multiple years in a row. But another interesting point about LeBron James' intelligence, not just, just now that we're on that subject, I think this is a very interesting point. A lot of people point, you know, when they point to LeBron's shortcomings, you know, they always they point to like specific moments, right? Like they point to like, uh, you know, they point to the the you know how he missed the shot and then Ray Allen had to bail him out, and then they point to you know um, the the game in Boston in 2010 where he didn't play well, and yeah, you know, or like the Mavs series. Yeah, so I mean the the one the more recent one is you know how uh, in Game Three of the NBA Finals this year how Kevin Durant shot that three and yeah. he made it in his face. So I was listening to uh, an NBA coach, uh, Earl Watson. He coached the Suns, and you know even though the Suns aren't good, obviously you have to respect an NBA yeah. coach for the knowledge of the game because they're able to get that job and they're only thirty absolutely. So Earl Watson basically was speaking on this, and he said that he said that. Look, Kevin, like when you when you analyze, and maybe I'm giving LeBron a little bit too much credit, but I really don't think I am. <laughs> Earl Watson said that, like analytically, like like when you when you watch when you watch film, right? It's like a known fact, like regarding Kevin Durant, like it's it's one of these known things that on the left wing, he's after he crosses half court, Kevin Durant is always either he's one dribble away from a pull up three on the left wing, or he's two dribbles away from being at the rim. So Earl Watson say, says that what LeBron did there was he was choosing whether or not he was going to give up. Was he going to give up the one dribble and make Kevin Durant shoot the three, or was he going to give up two dribbles and contest Durant at the rim? And LeBron chose to contest the three because a three is a contested three is obviously a much lower percentage shot yes. than a contested shot at the rim, especially because Kevin Durant's three inches taller than him. So. I don't really see that. I don't. I don't see how people are burning LeBron for that and saying, "Oh, LeBron got embarrassed. He shot that right in his eye. He this. He did that." Like he literally, like just as LeBron always does, he made the smart play and he contested the three rather than giving up the two. Yeah, and I, I like to think that it's more of a credit to uh, Kevin Durant than uh, to LeBron. I don't think many people use that to bash LeBron. I'm, I'm sure Skip Bayless does or something, but you know he'll he'll do anything stupid. But mm-hmm. I mean, I see it quite a bit actually. I mean, like I see it like basically for anyone who. Not even Skip Bayless, but just anybody who's who's against like the Cavaliers, like or just LeBron in general. Like they just use it as like Kevin Durant. Like at, when, whenever they point to saying that Kevin Durant outplayed LeBron in the finals, they always point to that. It's like oh. like he he shot like he he embarrassed him. Like he snatched his soul. Like he did that. Like he he shot it right in his like. I mean, that's a shame. I mean, I personally like. I mean, obviously, like all credit to Kevin Durant for making the shot. I'm just saying that people shouldn't kill LeBron. Like people shouldn't be like bashing LeBron at all because he made the right. Like, how can you say that Kevin Durant killed him on the play if he if LeBron literally did the only thing that he could do? Like, I mean, no, absolutely. You know, like he did his job like, perfectly. It, it, and I feel the same way for like 
Like, I don't make big deals when players get dunked on if they actively try to contest the shot. Like, what are you going to do? Like, if it happened, then it happened. Like, there's nothing that you can do about that. So I hate when people try and point to, like, oh, Kevin Durant embarrassed LeBron. Like, I mean, what about, like, the, all the time? Like, what about, like, all the six times that LeBron James dunked on Kevin Durant in the finals? And, like, like on it, like if, if LeBron had won the series, then that would be all that we were talking about. Like, oh, that dunk on KD. Like, KD's not this, KD's not that. But... It just goes to show how much narratives flip and how much you know opinions change and how much what people say changes based on who wins, which is almost all of the time out of control of one player. It's like I think people understate how much goes into winning a championship and how blessed you how blessed you have to be in terms of your situation, your teammates, your coaching, your health, all that stuff. Like so much has to go right to win an NBA championship, and I think that's shown so many times in the NBA. But for some reason, people just love to give credit unnecessarily and discredit unnecessarily as well. No, definitely, and at, at the very least, it looks like we're past the worst of the LeBron hate at this point. It seems like it comes in the middle of his career, and now he's on the back end, so you know, at least in terms of years. So and like he's probably going to play, what, like 21 years? So, yeah, like we're on the back end. So Yeah, you know, hopefully. So depending on where he goes this season, we might get more. But If we got believe me, if he played like 25 years, that'd be amazing. But I, I don't know if that, that's going to happen. Yeah, 25 probably. I would probably, I mean... I think he'll probably play one season with his son because that seems to be something he really wants. Um, That'd be bizarre. Sorry? That'd be bizarre. Yeah, his son oh is his son is 13. Yeah. And the NBA is eliminating the one and done. So I guess at this point it would only have to be five more years, which would be his you know, 20th or 21st season. So. Oh, you know what's going to happen? He's probably going to buy out a team at some point, and then every time like his team and the Hornets play, it's just going to be like, oh, it's Michael Jordan versus LeBron 2.0. Yeah, and I think it, LeBron is going to be a much better owner than LeBron. Oh, yeah. There's, yeah. There's, he's, he's, a, he's a higher IQ. Like, better business, thing, like, I mean, if Michael, if Michael Jordan's such a great basketball player, and he understands the game so well, and he's such a genius, and he's such a killer at the game, why has his team been completely awful for every year that he's owned them, except for one when they made the playoffs and lost in the first round? Yeah, exactly. And, like, that's a problem with Michael Jordan. Like, he's, nobody ever talks about his character. Like, everyone just wants to be be like, oh, he's the ultimate competitive killer. Yeah, well, he's also a terrible gambler, and he's kind of a, a jerk in terms of how he treats people. And his competitiveness, like, it, it harms his social relationships. Like, people don't want to be around him. And, like, you, you see someone like Charles Barkley, who obviously he's not a great guy. And, like, he's not going to he, – he's going to be like, oh, yeah, I love being friends with Michael Jordan and whatnot. But, like, he, Charles Barkley doesn't spend time with him because, like, he, he got insulted a bunch by him. And, like, Charles Barkley hey, lost him in the finals, obviously. I'm sure Michael Jordan le- never lets him forget it. And, like, it's just, he's not a good guy, ultimately. And, like, that's not something people ever talk about, despite the fact that everyone wants to talk about how he's the ultimate competitor. Yeah, I mean, I think people, it's just, it's interesting. I just think when, like, It'll be interesting because, you know, when people like, you know, when people our age, like, you know, you and I, and like when people who are like our generation, who grew up in yeah. our generation, when, when we grow up and we're like, when we're the people who are writing the stories and where like our generation is on TV and like Skip Bayless and like all those guys are gone. Like, I think the narrative, will, I think like, I think the, the, the grand perception will really change it because, you know, by that point, LeBron is going to be top five in assists. He'll be top, or he'll be top 10 in assists. He'll be, you know, probably number one, number two or number three in scoring, um, he'll have demolished the record books and he'll probably have four to five championships and, you know, he'll have probably played all this, these years in the NBA, he'll have insane averages, he'll have all these things. So I think in time, I think that, you know, it'll, it'll probably start to shift away and 
you know, it'll probably kind of start to be viewed like, it's like currently the way it's viewed is like you got Bill Russell and Michael Jordan and LeBron. And then, you know, later on, it's probably going to be Michael Jordan is going to be viewed kind of like Bill Russell, where people think that whole stuff is, it's like obsolete what they did because their era was so different kind of, because, you know, like the eras, you know, the eras are obviously not changing with the three point shot and whatever's going to have to develop to counter it. Like we were talking about earlier, you know, Michael yeah. Jordan will probably be seen as like just that historic figure who just had something ridiculous because of the era he's played in similar to how, similarly to how we view Bill Russell. Um, and then obviously given however the league changes, you know, if they add more teams or if they change playoff formatting, whatever happens, uh, I definitely think that there's going to be some changing of the stories and stuff. And Michael Jordan will probably be viewed as much less than he is right now. And LeBron will probably be viewed as higher because for all these new generational players who are coming in, like, you know, Ben Simmons, um, the Mitchell, Joel, like all these guys look up to LeBron. Like they, they don't cite Michael Jordan as being their inspiration or their influence or coach. They don't do any of that. They all say LeBron. I yeah. think it's I think it's even been noted that Anthony Davis wears twenty three for like because of LeBron. Wow, that'd be incredible. Um, I think that is true because uh, given his age, I don't think he would have been. He was born in like he. I think he was born in like what ninety three maybe. Yeah, so something he, like that. He would have been a baby during the first three peaks, so he wouldn't have even been watching Jordan like that. So. Yeah, and obviously, uh, my, uh, LeBron James wore that initially for Michael Jordan. So yeah, that that'd be the ultimate, uh, you know, just uh, spurning of him if he uh, stole his number. Yeah, I think an, inter an interesting thing is like, uh, like, uh, so people have discussed how maybe the league should consider retiring the number twenty three <laughs> as a whole because of those two players, but that's probably not going to happen. Well, how how do you feel about the the practice in general of uh, retiring jerseys? I mean, I think it's weird. Like, I it just because like sometimes they'll end up retiring a jersey, of, like for no like the fact that Kobe Bryant has two jerseys retired is stupid. Like that's so dumb. Yeah. Like just pick one. Like there's he was not that great to be the only like he was great. Don't get me wrong. He was super talented. He could do a lot of stuff that a lot of people you know actually I don't want to say that he could do a lot of stuff that other people can do because a lot of people could do what he did. But yeah. he was really talented and he deserved to have one retired because he won five championships and won an MVP and made a lot of all-defensive, all-NBA, and all-star games and all that stuff. But, I mean, he's not better than Michael Jordan, who doesn't have two numbers retired. He's not better than Bill Russell. He's not better than Kareem. I don't even really think he's better than Shaq. I don't think he's better than LeBron. I don't think he's better than Will Chamberlain. I don't think he's better than, you know, Magic Johnson. That's a good debate right there on Shaq versus him. Yeah, I mean, I I mean, I, I always tend to side with Shaq because, I mean, if you just look, I mean, if you look back historically, like, they played how many years together, and every time they went to the finals together, Shaq won the MVP every time. So. Yeah, that's a good point. Me, yeah. How can you tell me Kobe Bryant is better than him if he didn't even win one of the finals? Like, I mean, and I, I understand that. Like, I'm not trying to say that you have to win Finals MVP to be important to a championship team because obviously that's not true. Given you know, like Steph Curry last year in the final, like Steph Curry had an amazing Finals, um, but Kevin Durant won just because he was better. Like, you can't tell me that Kobe Bryant is definitively better than Shaquille O'Neal when all the time that they played together, Shaquille O'Neal was definitely the more dominant player. Definitely the leader of the team and he won finals MVP for all three of the championships. And when Kobe won it, his two finals MVPs, he only has two. Yeah. And uh, for both, both of them, the second best player on the team was Pau Gasol, who you really wouldn't expect to win a finals MVP. And, <coughs> and I think there's even some debate about whether or not he should have had both of them. Cause I think he was outplayed a little bit by Pau Gasol in one of the series, but yeah, no, and Pogsaw, that was the that was just the peak of his career. If you look at his uh, career before that, I mean, he was good. He wasn't that good, and like, 
if you look at the past, it obviously he was he was good on the Bulls. He, he was good for the Derrick Rose, uh, Derrick Rose uh, teams. The as I like to call them, the just the gang that came off the bench, just like it just. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, Pau Gasol was an interesting. I think he had like he had his career high in rebounding when he was like thirty two or thirty three. Like it's weird. Like he kind of got better with age, I guess, because he's also kind of a finesse player, um, more skilled than he is, you know, bruiser. Um, but I, I think Pogosol is an underrated player, but he, he he's he's good. Like, I mean, he is what it is. Like a fine Spanish wine. He really is. He's, he, that's it. he's a very educated person, actually. I heard he went to medical school for a little while. Oh, wow. That is really good. Trying to, or something like that. He had a goal of going, or he went He went to medical school briefly because the rules are different in Spain. You can go at a younger age or something, and he went, but he gave up because he wanted to play basketball, which is interesting. So. Yeah, that's really impressive. And uh, speaking of player intelligence, I, I always forget how smart Shaq is just because of all the stuff he says on uh, on TV, obviously, and just all the things that he does. But like he skipped a grade in, in school. He was good enough to do that. Obviously, you can appreciate the fact that that's a good barometer of intelligence. And just like the fact that like he he had a lot of really good achievements and like he obviously went back to college and like at LSU and he he is a really smart guy and like it, it's interesting that doesn't come off more and like just in terms of like how he manages his business he's really become like just in the past decade and coming out of the two thousands era he probably has the biggest brand of anybody. He's he's extremely impressive to me because. Shaq is one of those players. I think he's interesting because his like personality and just who he is. Like he, like I'm not trying to be cheesy or anything, but he is kind of one of those people that's like larger than life. I guess like yeah. not not physically just because he's huge because obviously he is huge, but like he just has a really like bright personality. Like you know you always want to tune in and listen to what Shaq is saying, and like he's funny, he's intelligent, he's interesting. Um, he has good opinions. He doesn't say dumb things. Like he just. He says silly things, but he doesn't say stupid things, whereas, like, Charles Barkley says stupid things. Yeah, and I do wonder how much that's just his brand at this point. He likes to put out stupid things. But Yeah, that is true. Charles Barkley is an interesting character. I mean, Charles Barkley, to me, he just seems to be a little bit too bitter. Yeah. He seems to have too much of an issue with the current day players, whereas, you know, you have other, like, you know, Isaiah Thomas and, you know, Shaq, and, you know, you have, like, Matt Barnes. And Matt Barnes is a strange example, but he's recently retired. But, but like, you know, you have older players now, veterans who support the current players and just kind of say, like, they're doing a great job with what they're doing. And then you have players like Charles Brooks who are like, oh, the league sucks now. Like, it needs to be how it was. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah, and like my favorite moments of Charles Barkley were always, the, I don't know if this was the last playoffs or the year before that, but just him always coming on during the playoffs and be like, sorry guys, I got, the Predators were on overtime. Dang, those NHL playoffs are so much better than these NBA playoffs. Yeah, I mean, and he also, I remember he used to wear, he used to go on air constantly and say, uh, you jump shooting teams can't win championships, and then Golden State won. Yeah. Golden State won the championship, so then he had to wear a shirt that said, jump shooting teams won, Charles Barkley zero. And then the next year, Cleveland won. And so he had to put jump shooting teams two, Charles Barkley zero, because he's never won a championship. So. Yeah. And hopefully Chris Ball can obviously take that moniker. I mean, sure, we want Chris Ball to win a championship, but and but it really does seem like it's going to come down to this year if he can do it or not. Because just in terms of the injuries, if like you're not going to get a better chance than this, where like the Warriors are this banged up. And there's not really any superstar contenders out of the West. Obviously, fantastic teams all around, but not on the same scale as the war uh, as the Warriors or the Rockets. And 
just in terms of the East, it seems like the Rockets could trounce any of them right now, even LeBron, unfortunately. I mean, the interesting thing with the Rockets, I think CP3, I agree with you, I think this is his best chance to win it as a as kind of like a star player still. But I feel like if he fails this year and it doesn't work out, I feel like ideally the best place for him to go would be San Antonio. Yeah. Because San Antonio needs an upgrade at point guard, and they might just need an upgrade and influx of talent anyway because of Kawhi's departure. Him and LaMarcus Aldridge, I think, could form a really good one-two punch. LaMarcus Aldridge, I think, I guess he would be the second best player he's ever played with after James Harden. Yeah. Uh, so, because um, I personally believe LaMarcus Aldridge is a better player, smarter player, better guy than Blake Griffin. Yeah, but no, definitely. CP3, like, cause, because the thing is with San Antonio is, like, because they win championships kind of sporadically, like, in, you know, in recent years they've dwindled off, I guess, but... I feel like it's only because you know how they had the seven-year gap between when they won 2007 and then they won 2014. Yeah, I feel like San Antonio is kind of just going through one of those phases right now, where like all the other teams in the West are kind of like because like in between 2007 and 2014, like all those all of those years in which they didn't win championships were either dominated by the Lakers or by them. Yeah. So you know, in 2008, nine, and ten, the Lakers went to the finals, and then 12 was that one-off Thunder year. And then 13, they went to the finals. And then 14, they got back and they won. So I feel like it's only a matter of time before, you know, the thing starts shifting again in the West. And, you know, the dynasty kind of Golden State, Houston stuff kind of falls down a little bit. Then San Antonio can get back up on the rise and get back and all that stuff. So I feel like maybe Chris Paul, if he goes there, would position himself to, you know, at some point win one. Because the Spurs are just kind of like the best, like, just in, like probability-wise, because of how frequently they win in this, like, in this era. Um, you know, you could just put him there, and I guess, you know, some random year he'll just come out and win one. Oh, yeah, um, and, and that's the biggest thing with the Spurs is just they're always going to hang around. They're always going to be like a four seed, a three seed, maybe a two seed, and maybe a six seed. And they're always just going to be there in the playoffs waiting for a situation where the ball's going to roll the right way. If you if you look at uh, two years ago in the playoffs against the Thunder, that easily could have been a Spur, uh, Spurs win. And then they, they could have faced the Warriors in that uh, series instead of the Thunder. We saw how well the Thunder did. Like, who knows? That could have been the Spurs in the finals, and that would have been fascinating. And, like, it's just every year trying to put yourself in a situation where you're prepared to capitalize on these things, because it's as we keep saying. The playoff, yeah, the playoffs. Are, specifically, because the Spurs, were, they, they, they played, they beat Golden State in, uh, like, they, they had beaten Golden State handily a couple times. In, they beat them once in Oracle, and, you know, that was the year they only won nine games, so beating them in Oracle was kind of a big deal. Yeah. And, and Tim Actually, I don't, I don't think they beat them at Oracle. They beat them in San Antonio, but they beat them pretty handily. And I remember that was a huge deal that year because all the teams that had beat them in the 73 and 9 season were like, they were all games that were considered like, oh, that was an off night. They yeah. weren't really like there all the way. But San Antonio was like the only compet. Like, there were about three, there were about three or four, com like, three of the nine games were like competitive losses, which was the one to Denver that they lost, and then they lost to San Antonio, and then they lost to Boston. Um, Oh yeah, that was a crazy game. Yeah, that Boston, I remember. And maybe there were so many blown fan calls in that one. The Minnesota game was also competitive, but that was kind of random too. Like they they were playing it back to back, yeah. and they were at home. They were they were playing back to back, and it was the back to back after they had lost to the the Celtics. Yeah. So they played you know a minimal number. So when the Spurs beat them that year, I remember that was a really big deal. So uh, I was looking forward to seeing them in the conference finals against one another because that was the year that Kawhi really came out and. He was, you know, that was his back-to-back -back defensive player of the year season. Tim Duncan was still there for all that leadership. Monty yep. Ginobili, Tony Parker were playing better, um, all that stuff. So I was really looking forward to that that year. And then I remember there were some really, really poor foul calls in the Oklahoma City-San Antonio series. And 
Oklahoma City ended up going there. And then, you know, basically, I, I personally believe if the Spurs had went, like, it's it's weird thinking back on these situations now because of how much they could have changed how the NBA is now. Because, like, if the Spurs won that series, I don't think that Kevin Durant would have went to Golden State because, you know, I feel like the reason that he ended up going to Golden State was kind of because, like, he realized how close he was. Like, he realized how he got so close and still couldn't do it against yeah. them. So it was kind of like, I can't beat them, so I got to join them. So I think, like, his decision-making, his process would have been so much more broad if he had, you know, like, if he hadn't lost to them. And, like, because, you know, I definitely feel like he factored them in so much to the decision because he saw firsthand how good they were and he imagined how much better they could be or how much better he could be if he was there. Yeah. So... You know, you never know. Maybe if San Antonio had won and San Antonio had beaten Golden State in a competitive seven-game series, or maybe Kevin Durant could have joined the Spurs, or, you know, if maybe Golden State won and then he joined San Antonio, it would be like, oh, maybe I can't compete with them in OKC, but I can compete with them in San Antonio. I can team up with Kawhi, whatever. You know, it's always interesting to go back and look at how those scenarios could change. Yeah, and, and if, if say, the Warriors don't make the, the what is it, the... The finals. Sorry, I was blanking on that. For some reason, I was thinking Stanley Cup finals. Still, it's like yeah. I keep thinking about hockey because those playoffs are also starting up uh, this week. That's always a big problem for me because I always want to watch both of them at the same time, and I can't watch eighty-eight games in two weeks. That's physically yeah. impossible. But yeah. and obviously, I'm choosing NBA this year. But uh, yeah, like just the fact that if the Warriors don't make the finals this year. It, it could easily turn into a team where, like, we start looking at them as a Spurs if, like, they don't win it next year either. Like, just them being, like, an on-and-off team or, like... That's obviously... what I think, too. I, 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 I had been thinking about that as well. I mentioned that to a friend of mine last week, that I feel like the Golden State is just the next... I don't think they're necessarily a dynasty in terms of, like, Showtime Lakers, no. Boston, Chicago. I think they're the next Spurs because they have such a solid system. They have a solid group of players who are going to be... Like, they're going to have longevity because, you know, Clay and Steph are not predicated on athleticism. They're shooters. Kevin Durant's not overly athletic either. He's a shooter. Draymond Green, not overly athletic. He's a playmaker. You know, they kind of have that core kind of thing as well where, like, they just have a really good system, really good coach with good schemes. and yeah. Great ownership, great be, GM. Be the next Spurs, yeah. I agree with that. Yeah, and, like, if you just look at how the Spurs started off, they had fantastic talent. You had David Robinson paired with Tim Duncan. You had a – I keep forgetting, who was there a point guard during that time? Like, uh, I, I just, uh, I'm sorry. Bruce Bowen. Oh yeah, like Bruce Bowen, he he was really good, and like it just they constantly churned out talent. Like you look at uh, obviously you had uh, Tony Parker eventually coming in, and like the after the 2003 championship, same with Manu Ginobili, and then eventually like even just bringing in a ton of role players. Just every time you had Stephen Jackson, he was awesome for a while. I think I'm missing like a really good center that they had, and like just. Every year you see them bring in new players and make them great. And like that's something you're seeing even now with the Warriors, even though for the Spurs it was completely reliant on talent for like the 99 championship and the 2003 one. You're seeing players like JaVale McGee brought in, like him made into a great player. You're seeing someone like Quinn Cook get developed. You're seeing just all these young players that are coming in and like they're turning into uh, great players in the system, sure. But like if they go onto a new team, I would think they would still be pretty good because of their experience in the system. And, like, that's a real credit to them. And, uh, like, that's just something I was seeing, like, just looking ahead to free agency. And, like, people were talking about, hey, where's Patrick McCaw going? Because, like, people actually think that he has become a good player as a result. And, like, he's not just a cog in the system. Yeah, I see that as well. And I think it's interesting kind of because, you know, San Antonio is, they're in that situation. Like, they've never won back-to-back championships. I feel like Golden State could kind of be the same way because, 
you know, they won in 15 and 17, which would kind of be just how like San Antonio won in 03 and 05. And then yeah. they won again in 07. So maybe Golden State won't win this year, but maybe they'll win next year. Um, you know, because this is the kind of the year where they're really getting challenged. And obviously that can be an issue sometimes for some teams. So that's obviously how it was for the Spurs in uh, 2006. You know, the Dirk was really, really good. So the Mavericks ended up beating them. So, um, and the Suns are also really good. Like, Basically, the years in which the West was extremely, extremely competitive were the years that uh, San Antonio didn't make the finals. Like 2008, that year that I, you know, that we talked yeah, the about. Yeah, cra- the crazy year where the Warriors were 48 wins and like almost everybody had 50 wins in the playoffs. Yeah, like all the, yeah, exactly. Like every, yeah, all that stuff. Like that was the year that San Antonio didn't make the finals. 2006 was when Steve Nash was an MVP, Dirk Nowitzki was an MVP candidate, the Mavericks had won 60 whatever games. Like, that year they didn't make them. So I could definitely see, you know, Golden State being a similar situation to San Antonio where they just, they win off and off, they on and off when the opportunity presents itself the best for them to win rather than just consistently winning. Yeah, and it is interesting that nobody, in, like nobody ever wants to talk about, ooh, is this the next Spurs dynasty? Everyone just wants it to be, ooh, the next Lakers dynasty that won uh, free, a free in a row, or oh, the next Bulls dynasty. But nobody yeah. ever wants to talk about like the twenty-year dynasty that is objectively more impressive, even if you just look at it in terms of total championships. That being five. Yep, that's true. Yeah, but I I think we've mostly exhausted all of that discussion. So do you want to move on to uh, some of the interesting topics I came up with? Sure. Okay, so uh, something that we teased last week was that we were going to talk about the. I guess it was two weeks ago at this point. But uh, that we're going to talk about the Tim Donahue scandal, uh, the fallout from that, if he is a bit of a martyr for what he did, uh, the role of sports gambling within the current NBA, the past NBA, and just what the future looks like for it. And also just some of his comments and like how they really can be interpreted based on his character and what it should, what we should uh, think of the NBA based on them. So uh, can, you, can you give the listeners a rundown of what, the Tim Donahue scandal exactly is? So basically around uh, in the mid 2000s, or not the mid, the early 2000s, um, you know, times around like 2002, 3, 5, 4, 5, 6, like, you know, the early, the, basically the first half of the 2000s decade, um, Tim Donahue was a referee in the NBA who, uh, it was found out that he was actually, he was betting on games at, and he was a referee, so he would call games in favor of the team that he bet on. So, like, you know, for example, if, if like, uh, if he, if there's, like, a betting line of, like, seven on a game and he took the over, um, then he would be calling fouls in favor of the team that's winning in order to, you know, have the over in that game. Well, that, well, that was never proven, but he would definitely bet on games that he was refereeing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm just saying, like, in general, for, bet, like, explaining the betting line and all yeah. that, like, an example of what he might have done, yeah. Yeah. So that that's essentially what he did, and then there there became a lot of issues with it because around that time there had also been multiple officiating scandals in general with you know the two thousand two Kings situation, the two thousand six Mavericks situation, where uh, there were multiple suspicious calls, you know, in late games of critical games. So, and he also came out and <coughs> he made comments about the two thousand six NBA Finals and said that the NBA would never want. Uh, Dallas to win the finals because referees don't like Mark Cuban because they think the Heat winning would be better for ratings. They made the Heat the series go longer than it should have in order to have better ratings and stuff like that. So uh, he basically allowed for a lot of conspiracy theorists to believe that the NBA is completely rigged, um, and he kind of he created a whole fiasco about it and the whole issue. Yeah, 
And that's a, that's a good summary, yeah. So basically, Tim Donahue, he would bet on... It, it's basically, you know, my comparison to it would be uh, Pete Rose in baseball, where uh, Pete Rose, what he would do is he would just bet on any games that he'd be playing in, and he would always say, oh, I bet on my team to win every time, so like nobody would really care. I mean, at least for me. They obviously kicked him out of the Hall of Fame because of it, which I think is absolutely ridiculous, but... Yeah, like you would, you would just throw a bunch of money on like uh, some games that you had some control of the outcome uh, for, and you would make money based on that. And like Tim Donahue would talk about how that was and that made the games more interesting for him. He would talk about how he would use insider information to make the and not make the calls, but just like uh, decide who he's going to bet on. Like one of the biggest things he would talk about is how like he would know that some referees had certain biases against players. And that he knew that, oh, coming into this game, uh, I don't know, let's say Joey Crawford is re refereeing the Spurs game or something. I don't know if he actually has this bias. But, like, it, he knows that, oh, uh, he's going to foul Tim Duncan enough, uh, a bunch because he just hates Tim Duncan or something. Or he's going to give uh, Pop a technical, and that's going to make uh, him less uh, aggressive within the game. And that's going to make it much more likely that the Spurs are going to lose the game. Like, he would use stuff like that to make calls in it brings up an interesting discussion on how unbiased referees really are when uh, judging players that they have those kinds of feelings about. Um, I definitely do think that there is a bias. I think, you know, we, we talked about refereeing pretty in-depth a couple weeks ago, but uh, I think, re like, re like, the way that it's done is you can always kind of see when referees have, I guess, you know, reached their fuse with players, and that fuse is definitely shorter for some players. Like, that is... That is, I think, something that's definitely true because when you have a player like Kawhi Leonard, for example, who never talks, never complains, never yells, like he, he doesn't get in ref spaces, he doesn't complain, he doesn't whine about foul calls, referees are much, like, they officiate him much like, I mean, they officiate him, like, nicely. Like, I mean, like, they officiate him properly, they, they give him calls that he deserves, they, they don't give him technicals, even when, you know, sometimes he does get up in their faces, but... Then when you have a player like, you know, Draymond Green, for example, who every time there's a call that he feels is wrong, he, he immediately turns to the ref, claps his hands, screams, throws his arms on him, is like, give me that call. You know, this, the referee is much more likely to give him two texts and just send him out of the game. And, you know, we've seen that, I think, with Kevin Durant this season, where now that he's complaining a lot more, referees have begun to realize that. And, you know, he's been ejected five times this season, where he asked to prior to this season, he'd only been ejected once in his whole career, or once or twice. Uh, and then, you know, now he's in, like, Rashid Wallace territory because he, this is the second most ejections in a season of all time. So uh, next to Rashid Wallace, who was ejected seven times uh, many, many years ago. Yes. <clears throat> so um, overall, I just think that referees definitely do have a certain bias. But I feel like to a degree, like, it really is human nature because obviously when someone is up in your face and yelling at you and telling you to do something or complaining to you or, you know, saying that you're doing a bad job at something, you're naturally not going to give them the same favor as someone who's coming up to you nicely and saying like, Hey ref, sorry, I think you missed that one. Like, could you, could you just look out for that next time? Which is something that LeBron James has said before. He said that the proper way to talk to officials when they miss a call is to go up to them and just say, Hey, like you, I think you missed that call. Could you just please make sure to like look out for that next time? And he said that that's allowed him to have a really good relationship with the referees throughout his career because, you know, I don't think LeBron James is not very high in technical fouls and he doesn't, he doesn't really does. He's only been ejected one time in his entire career. And that was kind of also a silly thing where the ref just thought that he was being disrespectful. So, um, and he, I, I personally don't think he was because it was a one technical ejection, which you rarely, rarely ever see. Um, oh, really? 
That's weird. Yeah, you know, it was a it was a one technical ejection. So maybe he said something that the referee really didn't enjoy. But even after, like LeBron's reaction to getting ejected was nothing serious. He like he was just like wow, like I can't believe you did that, and he walked away. He, he really, um, and you know it, it's just an interesting thing. I feel like because I'm not like I, I, I'm not sure that this has any sort of actual merit, but this is just kind of like an interesting point. <coughs> Two players who don't. Um, uh, there's a list of players who have. Uh, more steals than technical, uh, more steals than fouls in their career, which is obviously an extremely difficult thing to do. Because obviously, when you go for a steal, you're you're very likely to reach in and touch their arm and get yeah. called for reach and foul. And like Kawhi Leonard, for example, he's a player who doesn't complain to refs. He has more steals than fouls. Jimmy Butler is a player who has more steals than fouls. Um, and I, let me pull up the list because you know there are, there are, there are more players. Uh, yeah, I bet who, Chris Paul's on that. Fahima, yeah, list uh, uh, more steals. I'll see. Steals than fouls. Let's see. Yeah, Chris. Oh, yeah, he's close. Uh, 2007 steals versus 2,193 fouls. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he's close. So, like, you know, um, Maurice Cheeks, he's known for not really being that outspoken of a player. You know, he, he was kind of reserved. Allen Iverson, he was always really, even though he had like an attitude and stuff, he was really nice. Like, he was. He was respectful to referees. He he never like yelled at referees. He he was like he had an interesting attitude and like he you know, but his was always about the game. It really never had any animosity towards the referees. Jason Kidd was the same way. He played with a really you know hard nosed intensity, but he was always respectful to the refs and he was more of a quiet, reserved guy. Um, so you know, I think I think there is a little bit of a thing there with you know more like referees might not always call, even if maybe they're unsure whether or not you fouled. You know, they might just give you the benefit of the doubt, depending on the kind of person that you are, which obviously can be really wrong. Um, so, I mean, I think that's just an interesting point. Yeah, definitely. Just, I, I'm just uh, perusing some uh, different players now to see how it looks. And yeah, even if for, even for like all-time steel leaders, if for sure someone like John Stockton, he would uh, be fine on it. But no, apparently he has 700 more uh, personal fouls than steel. So. Yeah, it very much is about uh, just being a great defender, obviously, and then also just not having any problems with the refs. Exactly, because another thing about John Stockton, now that you know, people like a lot of NBA legends say that he was really like a dirty player um, because he, you know, he would sometimes set illegal screens, but he would get away with it because he was really small. So you know, maybe some referees noticed that and didn't always give him the benefit of the doubt, even though he's the all-time leader in steals and a good defender. You know, maybe John Stockton, even though we kind of perceive him as, you know, being that nice white guy who could really pass the ball and play point guard. Yeah. You know, maybe he wasn't too nice of a guy to the referees all the time. So, you know, that could that could play a part in why he had more fouls and steals. So, but like, you know, Jimmy, I've never, I, I watch a lot of, I watch a lot of Bulls games when Jimmy Butler was on the Bulls. I watch a lot of Timberwolves games, obviously, because they're my favorite team. And I never see Jimmy Butler yelling at the referees or getting overly upset with the referees. I've never seen it with, <sighs> I've never seen it with uh, Kawhi Leonard either. So I just think that's an interesting point. Yeah, definitely. That's that's really interesting. I'm gonna have to look at a bunch more players afterwards. I don't know if that was an exhaustive list that you were uh, reading before. But hopefully not. So that my my uh, efforts won't be wasted. But yeah, just uh, going back to the whole Tim Donahue thing. Uh, do you think that in 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 any way his uh, it, like just his credibility was uh, really affected by the fact that he did this whole gambling thing, or can we like trust the fact that like when he's saying that. And obviously, you have to evaluate it on a case by case basis. But like, can we uh, take him at his word that like uh, the NBA Finals in two thousand two and two thousand six were in a lot of ways fixed, and 
obviously not fixed, as in, like, they couldn't win, but, like, that they were uh, heavily uh, set up not to win, and that, uh, in general, referees are, like, in, not instructed, but encouraged to make foul calls in a way that will uh, allow for more seven-game series so that the NBA has more uh, revenue from the playoffs, and, like, just a bunch of the stuff and more controversial things that he said. I mean, I to be completely honest with you, I I don't see a reason for him to lie because, like, I mean, he has been out of the news for so long. So, like, why would it's not like he would be saying these things for publicity and attention? Like, it's not like he's getting on like talk shows and getting on ESPN and like people are like giving him like money to like for him to talk about these things. It's not like he's it's not like he's making like consistent statements and like saying all these things in order for media attention or any sort of publicity or money or fame or anything like that. So. I just, I, to be completely honest with you, just based on the evidence that I've seen and like I've watched the 2002 NBA Finals, like I've, I've watched the, that series and I've watched how it was officiated in closing moments and closing games. I watched the closing moments of the 2006 NBA Finals, which many people talk about, and there are just some clear plays where Dwayne Wade is not being touched at all, but he's getting, he's getting sent to the free throw line. There was a game in that series where Dwayne Wade shot more free throws than the entire Dallas Mavericks team. There was a they shot, and then there was another game where the team as a whole, the Miami Heat, shot more free throws than the Dallas Mavericks did in the entire game, strictly in the fourth quarter. Yeah, um, like they shot twenty four free throws in the fourth quarter, and then there's similar situations to that in uh, the two thousand two NBA Finals, where you know the the Lakers were getting way, way, way many more free throw attempts than the Kings were, uh, and then you know you go back and you watch some of it, and there were really some questionable calls. So. Um, I really feel like he does have some evidence because to me it makes a lot of sense as to why you would want the Miami Heat to be NBA champions over Dallas because the market is off. I feel like it could have been a factor as well because like a lot of people could have been rooting for him to win because like she was such a star in Los Angeles and people wanted him to be a star in Miami too. So maybe they thought, you know, Miami, Shaq, that's mainstream media attention. Everyone knows Shaq. You know, it'll be like, you know, it'll bring attention because it'll be like this new D-Wade Shaq thing, which could be like the next Kobe Shaq thing or then you have obviously 2002 where I think it's fairly obvious to say that people would have preferred to see the Lakers in the finals for ratings because yeah. Los Angeles is much more appealing than Sacramento. Um, and just the players on the roster then too, you have Kobe and Shaq versus Chris Webber, who obviously already wasn't in great light in the media because of the whole Fab Five Michigan issue and that kind of thing. So I, I don't really see a reason not to believe him. So for that, I mean like, I don't see why he would. I, I don't see why he would just say that to say it. I guess because I feel like even in lies, there's always a little bit of truth. Um, that's just something I, I believe personally. But like he, I mean, he he. While he did do something dumb, like it's like, he, like he. I, there's a part of me that kind of believes that he was kind of just doing it for his own entertainment and just you know to make himself more engaged in it. I guess it was wrong for sure because you know you you can't bet on important games. And then call them differently just because of yourself. But I mean, or even take the chance that that could happen. Yeah, like obviously, like you were saying, like you have to evaluate it on a case by case basis, and you have to look at each individual instance differently because there are obviously different things on the line, and they're you know they're different. Because like, this is going to sound horrible to say, but if, like I mean, if if the Lakers in two thousand two were playing a regular season game against some awful like team. Like, I'm not sure what teams were awful in the 2000s off the top of my head, but, you know, whatever the case may be. Like, maybe if, like, let's say the Lakers are playing uh, the Orlando Magic in between Dwight Howard and Shaquille O'Neal. Like, I'm sure they would, you know, whatever it is. 
Like, if Tim Donahue's making suspicious calls in that game because he bet on the Lakers and some people he knew bet on the Orlando Magic, at the end of the day, <coughs> if you know the Magic aren't going to make the playoffs and the win isn't going to cost them anything, at the end of the day, that really ends up not being that big of a deal. Yeah. You just have to evaluate it a lot more heavily when you're talking playoff games, finals games, uh, and things like that. Um, but for them, I, I, I feel like what he's saying is true because I do think that there is a bias in officiating. And that's just based on having watched the NBA for a couple of years and seeing how referees interact with players. And then obviously watching film uh, of 2006 and 2002 NBA Finals, the two most uh, questioned finals for being fixed in NBA history. So uh, I do think he has some points, but he does. I mean, obviously, just just as you would with anything else, you have to really look into it to say anything definitively. No, absolutely. Nobody's entitled to uh, just not be questioned. Like it's this comes into one of my personal philosophies as well that like you earn your trust every single day. So like obviously you have to look at everything on a case by case basis, but like. Okay, you did something wrong in the past. If you're doing it correct now, there's no reason we should ignore that. And yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I don't know why more people don't don't think that like Tim realize that Tim Donahue doesn't have any realize to be saying that, any any realize any reason to be saying this crap. And like he's only uh, going to look worse if he says it. So like he's either trying to be honest or he's trying to make a fool of himself, and he's clearly not trying to do that. And like. Exactly. And like one of his biggest things that you would always talk about is like that the NBA tries to fix a fix a not fix what it tries to promote its star players by uh, instructing referees not to call technical fouls on uh, certain star players, and it's been interesting to see this year that uh, technical fouls on star players have been uh, not yeah I guess through the roof compared to uh, recent years, and you have to wonder maybe Adam Silver was going under the hood and trying to bring some reform on that. Who knows and. Like, because now, like, the rate of uh, technical fouls for star players is, I haven't looked at the data exactly, but I would imagine it's pretty comparable to like, the, and that of the rest of the league, and just based on the fact that it's been uh, above what it usually is this year, that you would think that that would indicate that, like, it's, everyone's being treated fairly, and it's interesting to see that the media might not like that, actually. And, yeah, just in terms of the fixing of the 2002 and 2006 NBA Finals, it seems pretty uh, clear that the NBA would have huge reasons to do that, and obviously David Stern doesn't have a problem fixing things. We all saw what he did in the 1985 draft. I don't think that's even a conspiracy at this point that he was trying to give that one to the Knicks. And when, I mean, yeah, like he, you saw how he just threw that, thing, that envelope in there. Like, it was clearly at a bent corner. Yeah. And like just in terms of uh, another thing he was mentioning for a while was how like the NBA would try and promote the Nets after uh, Propoyov went off on that uh, huge spending spree, and like I I haven't seen uh, really direct evidence for uh, the referees uh, interfering in the Nets Raptors series when the Nets actually made it to the second round, but I I could obviously look back and see because that was obviously a very close series. You can impact it in that way. And yeah, just in, ter in terms of like how many uh, seven-game series we've been having in like the past couple of years, and, like you could say that the NBA is just close overall. But like uh, at some point, it's been uncanny that like all of these series go seven games, and like how rare it is now to see an NBA Finals that it goes like in last year's where it was only five games. Yeah, and I think like <clears throat> I mean I think that there there is some and like I mean even like another thing that I personally like. Like this was to to say this as a LeBron fan is very sad, but in the 2016 NBA Finals, like the Draymond Green suspension came at a very very suspicious time. Like he had like he had kicked Stephen Adams in the groin full force 
and he only got a flagrant one foul for that. But the next series, he took a slight swipe at LeBron James' groin. LeBron was in absolutely no physical pain, and LeBron, like, he was standing perfectly fine, and, like, LeBron, nothing happened to him. Like, he was, he, it, it looked like he didn't even feel it. Like, he just turned around and talked to Draymond Green normally. But because he moved his arm in that direction, he was suspended for a game, which obviously could have, which many people argue is a huge factor in obviously, them, you know, the, the momentum of that series turning around. So, I feel like, you know, there could be something there. Maybe they just wanted Draymond out for a game because they realized Draymond was important to their team and maybe you could do something to make the next game a little bit more competitive just to extend the series. Um, I mean, and the only reason that I say that is because, like, Draymond definitely, in my opinion, should have been suspended in the Oklahoma City series for the kick on Steven Adams. Yeah. And he wasn't. But when it was against LeBron in the actual finals, you know, maybe it was more marketable for them to have a Golden State uh <clears throat> a Golden State-Cleveland uh, rematch, so they didn't, um, so you know, so they didn't uh, end up suspending him in the Oklahoma City series because they wanted the rematch in the finals, or you know, they they didn't maybe they didn't want to see Oklahoma City versus uh, Cleveland because they thought that Oklahoma wouldn't really be bringing in the ratings in the same way that California would, or something like that. Yeah, and, and that that's an interesting point, but really, I think the what really happened with that Draymond Green suspension was that the NBA was gun shy on the Stephen Adams thing, and they realized by the time the LeBron James kick happened, obviously that one not being nearly as bad. But then they were like, "Crap, we really should have suspended them that first time." But now we gotta do a reactionary thing where if we let this guy get away with it twice, we're really screwed. So like they just yeah, I, I think so too. Which is that kind of that that kind of just goes back to the slight corruption that there is yes. in like. The whole like uh, you know like the makeup thing like the whole like making yeah, something up exactly clear like you really can't do that because you're 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 like obviously you know for Cleveland fans that was a great thing but you know what about like people who had bet like thousands of dollars that Golden State was gonna win because obviously they should have like I'm sure Vegas and like other betters lost a crap ton of money bet that the fact that Cleveland won that series so you know it changes a lot of things when you when you have to do makeup stuff like that. Oh, definitely, and it, it fits perfectly into what we were saying about how like referees will do that all the time, and it's very difficult to get them not to, and like it's incredibly hard to referee unbiased, and like that's the concern with uh, letting referees gamble is that even if you're not trying to uh, consciously uh, influence a team one way or another, your unconscious brain knows that you bet on a game, and like it doesn't want you to lose, so maybe if it's a 50-50 call, you lean 51% this way. Exactly, yep. And it, it just opens up a, just a can of worms that like you can't really control. And even if Tim Donahue, like personally, I really don't think he fixed the games at all. I think he did referee honestly, and it was just he made some money off of it. But the problem is, it's way too much of a risk to allow the referees to do that kind of thing. You have to set a precedent where Tim Donahue gets in trouble for that. Yeah, I agree. And you know, like I think it just like all referees in general to some degree will have a bias like you can't like it's just it's human nature like to me it's like can you like what if like you for example what if you like what if you grew up in cleveland right yeah. and like what if, what if you're a referee you grew up in cleveland and you've lived there your whole life and you've been experiencing the 52 year sports drought and you're refereeing in the nba finals when lebron is this close to winning a championship for cleveland like i mean in, in some, like you just said, in your unconscious mind somewhere, like maybe just somewhere, like you're just going to like instinctively blow your whistle because you want Cleveland to win. And you know that a call that you like you literally have the power to help end something that you hate. Like, why wouldn't you, you know, like, 
it's it's a real thing and you know hopefully they you know hopefully the nba looks into stuff like that and tries to avoid you know having like referees like you know officiate places that, that they're from and stuff but regardless like i mean how like if nba officials really wanted to gamble on the sideline like i mean there's really nothing that could stop i mean like it's not like the nba like you know i'm sure they don't monitor their finances daily and like you know check in on i would hope not yeah exactly like they're not they're not checking up on their bank accounts to make sure they're not getting any influx of money they could be doing any under the table kind of gambling that they wanted you know we've seen a lot more suspicious calls this year and some strange calls like you know maybe in that christmas like for all we know in that christmas day game the referees all could have had a thing betting on golden state so they didn't want to give lebron the foul calls at the end of the game even though he was fouled three times in the last minute you know so yeah it's strange stuff that could be going on under all of our noses we just we may never know but you're right they definitely did have to set a president with the tim donahue thing in terms of like if we find out you're going to be out of the league like we can't let you have that job if you're going to be doing stuff like that yeah, and it really is unfortunate because I, I like the guy. I think he is an honest person, and like just hearing his story and him talking about how like his dad refereed in the NBA for 30 years, and it was his lifelong long dream to uh, referee in the NBA, and obviously he did for like a, a good 10 years or so, but just to be thrown out and like tarnish, have his reputation tarnished, and him represented as like the worst referee and, and, and the worst thing a referee can be, and like the just the just like the evil referee and. It's, it's Where a, is he now? Do you know? What's he up to these days? Uh, it seems like he makes media appearances talking about conspiracies in the NBA, which sucks that that's what he does now. Like he wrote a book on his experience, and it seemed like that went pretty well. Some company, his publisher, uh, just reading off of Wikipedia, tried to rip him off on that and like refused to pay him for the book, and like he had to go to court to get one point three million from the book sales. But uh, yeah. yeah, like it just seems like it, here. I'll look up uh, where's Tim Donahue now, actually. Let's see. Uh, I, I'm assuming he's just doing like media appearance, appearances at this point, and uh, just uh, oh shoot, he was arrested again. Oh, uh, Donahue. Oh, he threatened a man. Oh, that's not good. Uh, ooh, ooh, with a hammer. Oh, that's not good. He did what? Yeah, apparently, he threatened a guy with a hammer. That dumb. Yeah, that's not that's not good at all. Oh, now it's some drug stuff. Oh, jeez. Donahue. <laughs> Maybe he's not that good person, but whatever. Yeah, I, I mean, you're all everyone's gonna fall from grace at some point, I guess. Uh, he kind of got kind of got set up to fall a little farther. But uh, this goes into the broader discussion I wanted to get into with the NBA uh, and Adam Silver coming out and talking about how he wants to legalize all sports gambling. Do you think that's a smart idea for the NBA, considering uh, the dark, dark history of uh, sports gambling in the past? Just mm, some examples that I can think of the. Uh, one of the biggest ones being the Super Bowl free between the Jets and the Colts. There being a lot of evidence that the league uh, actually uh, switched it so that the a the Jets would win the Super Bowl and they could make an AFL merger so that they could have literally twice the amount of teams in the league so they could have twice the revenue. But also just the insane betting lines that were the case right before the game, and just how quickly the betting lines were changing, like five minutes before the game, like towards the Jets instead of the Colts, as if like there was an insider fix. I mean, I think there's definitely an issue with it. Whatever. The, I mean, <clears throat> I just don't know if Adam Silver as one man and one like, like just I'm not sure how big his cabinet is of NBA. Like, I don't know how big it is, but I don't think that they have enough people to have to like to monitor that kind of thing, something that big and something that global. Like, I don't think that it would be. I don't think it would be simple enough to manage, and for that reason, 
I mean, le- legalizing all sports gambling, because like, then, like, you know, then, then you have to draw such definitive lines. Like, you have to be like, all sports gambling is legal for our league, but players can't participate, we can't participate, coaches, GMs, assistant coaches, trainers, scouts, you know, assist, you know whatever, like, all these referees, like, no one in our league can participate, but everyone around the league can participate, and, you know, if you have sports gambling and stuff like that, and there's so much money, it's, like, obviously there are going to be people who... Like, you know, what if, like, a G League player who's making, like, $20,000 a year wants to, you know, make some money off of sports gambling on the side, and he, you know, he, whatever, like, maybe he knows a couple things about the defensive schemes, and he has no chance to, like, let's say, like, he's, like, a two, uh, uh, he has a two-way contract, which is when you play some games yes. in the G League, you know, you know what it is. Um, like, let's say you know something about the coach's defensive schemes, and you have, like, after you, you know for a fact that your team's not good enough to beat that team, and then you make, like, a sports gambling bet on it, and you make, you know, you're able to make some money off of it, so... I, I, I'm sure that they wouldn't allow because then you know that player can get connections from the outside and let people know about it, and then a lot of people can make money, and then you have this whole new scandal. Um, I if if it was to be done, um, which I guess he's really leading in that direction, he'd really have to monitor it super closely and see what's into it, um, and you know they they'd have, they'd have to watch over it pretty pretty hard to make sure that no one on the inside is getting involved because. I mean, when everyone knows that whenever there's a lot of money at stake, you always get some people who end up getting corrupted by it and want in on it and want more money because, you know, money drives a lot of things. So it yeah. would have to be monitored super carefully. Um, I just think that the risk is honestly greater. It's, I think the risk is not worth the reward uh, personally. But, it, I mean, if it ends up happening, I think we'll definitely start to see some changes in the way that some games are officiated and we'll see differences in the results of games that we might not expect more frequently and stuff like that. Um, I just think like we'll know if, we'll know a thing or two if it ends up being legalized completely and all that, and then we see a change in the way that NBA games are. Um, so I guess we'll just have to wait and see how it goes. Yeah, what, what I would really like to see, honestly, is some kind of trial run just so we can see how this kind of thing would work. And you could say that Las Vegas is that, but that's not really the same idea. Where like Las Vegas A has a really long history of sports gambling, but also like it's it's just not everywhere. Like, I would like to see yeah. them do, like, a trial period of, like, a year and see how they could handle it. But yeah. but you mentioned how, like, the risk offsets the reward. I think that's a really good question that the NBA should honestly consider, and the fact that I'm so first bringing it up clearly shows that he thinks that the reward offsets the risk. And, like, something that I, I was reading an article on why uh, the English Premier League and just a lot of the footballing associations around the world are so rich. And a big thing for uh, Europe is that they have legalized sports betting, and like that's yeah. a that's a big part of why those uh, corporations, not, yeah, I guess they are corporations in a lot of ways, are so rich and like they're able to pay their players a hundred million dollars a year, is because there's so much money going around because of sports gambling and because of uh, obviously attention paid to the sport. But if you just look at attention, like there's not more attention going to uh, European football or whatnot than like the NBA or like the NFL. So, like, it's almost entirely coming from the sports betting aspect. And, like, if it literally increases, like, the player contracts, like, freefold, I don't know if you could say no to that, even if it does add that much more risk. I agree. I mean, I think that if, like, to have, just to just have that sort of, like, I mean, I mean, obviously, like, like I just said, like, money drives so many things, and, you know, obviously maybe Adam Silver wants to get in on it just for the pure fact that it would make the NBA so much richer, and he kind of wants to follow suit of these things. Like, yeah, I feel like it's just kind of, a, it's a whole different game when you just have this 30-team league versus an entire sport in a completely different continent involving so many different countries. Like, to me, it's just an entirely different thing. And No, definitely. You know, 
and like obviously, like the NBA already has like arguably the greatest player of all time, Michael Jordan. Like there's so many issues with all the stuff that he did with gambling. Like you know, there's a whole conspiracy out there that his gambling is part of the reason that his father was murdered. So like you know, obviously you'd hate to see something like that come up, and like you know, you never know with gambling. Like it can just be a risky thing in general, just for the average person. It can be addictive. It can you know cause cause tension in a lot of ways. So. To legalize something like it is obviously going to be something that would need to be carefully managed. Yeah, and I, I mean, it's inherently addictive. That's the whole point. If it wasn't addictive, then like it wouldn't be a good. It wouldn't be done by anybody. People do it for the rush of the game. They do it for the release, the fun of it. And like, you see players like Charles Barkley come out and be like, "Oh yeah, I wasted millions of dollars gambling just trying to get the cool mill or whatnot." And like, you see Michael Jordan having to basically quit the NBA for two years because the commissioner was sick of. The media firestorm that was coming out of a, his father being murdered, possibly due to uh, gambling ties, but I mean that one's that one's more of a reach than the fact that he just made Michael Jordan leave. Yeah, I mean that's definitely inconclusive. It's just it's weird because like I was watching a video on it the other day actually, and it's like Michael Jordan he had he had very very large checks written out to yes you know, drug dealers and you know that kind of thing. Well, what was it, Corzamba? Yeah. Yeah, he does amazing videos. I haven't checked him out in like six months, but uh, I, I have to go back through his backlog because I'm sure he's put out great stuff. He does. He does. He does. He, he provides good like facts, I feel like. He, he does a good job. Yeah. Have you uh, checked out the channel uh, B-Ball Breakdown at all? I have not. Okay, you might want to check it out because they do a really good job talking about basketball concepts and just like breaking down individual plays and looking at why they work. And like they're they're host for that. Like he's he he's like a full time uh, coach in like I don't know where, but he has a lot of knowledge on like why specific plays in the NBA work, or like oh let's look at the hammer and analyze how LeBron makes it work really well, and not like these yeah. other players when they run it, like it doesn't work as well. And oh let's look at uh, look at a video on like the Timberwolves, and let's look at how their defense is playing exactly, and where like things go wrong, or oh let's look at Andrew Wiggins, and let's see. <laughs> And let's see, like, oh, look at that. He's looking over there when he should be looking over here. And then you see the guy blow right by him. And, like, he yeah. just gets into a lot of detail on, like, these individual plays. And, like, the, from there you can extrapolate why and, like, how to answer questions like, why is the Timberwolves defense doing bad? Why is LeBron, eh, why is he as good at different plays as he as, as he is? Why is he good at driving at the basket? Why, and, like, it, he just does a really good job analyzing those kinds of things and tackles questions that I don't see a lot of people do. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so that's... Uh, okay. And do we have anything else on uh, sports gambling? Let me look for my outline. Uh, no, not really. Uh, wh what did you think about that whole uh, Darius Baisley thing where he's going to go to the G League for a year instead of going to uh, high uh, college? I, I mean, I, I think it's interesting just because, like... I mean... He's the first person to do it, and you know, obviously, whenever he does a trend, there has to be a first person to do it. Um, yeah, I honestly don't think it's a bad idea because if, um, like, he might like so many. There's obviously such an issue with the fact that the NCAA doesn't play people, like, doesn't pay players. And I mean, at this, he, he's 17 years old. He's our age, and he's gonna make, you know, he's gonna make twenty six thousand dollars a year, and you know. That's, he's making more money than he would make going to college, um, so it's you know it's going to be it's going to help out his parents or you know whatever his situation is with his family. Like it's obviously going to help them out as opposed to him having to go to college because he's going to be making actual money, <laughs> and money is money. So 
I don't think it's an issue because after this, after he plays in the G League for a year, he can just enter the NBA draft like anybody else. So, actually, he's 17, so I guess he would have to wait two years because he have to be 19 and one year removed from high school. Oh, I thought it was just one or the other. Oh, is it? I'm not sure. I, I think it is. I don't think they would say no to him in that case, but because uh, I think he would have thought of that. Like, he wouldn't just go to the G League. Like, he's not going to go to the drafter and be like, oh, you didn't realize that? Yeah, you got to be 19, buddy. Yeah, no, I, it's probably one or the other. I think it's either you have to be one year removed from high school or you have to turn 19 in the calendar year of the draft. Yeah, I, I, I think that would make more sense. But I, honestly, I could see it either way. Those rules are so bad. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, there shouldn't be. I mean, like, what if Ben Simmons had not been a one and done and he had came through to the high school and he had been in the league already for three years? Three years. Because he would have played the year that he was in college last year and this year. Oh, oh yeah, that's right. He, he did miss This would be his third year. Yeah, my bad. Uh, yeah, that that would have helped a lot, and like I think that he's proven everyone right who was saying that he was just coasting through college because like coming into the draft, everyone was like, oh, I don't know about Ben Simmons. He was coasting a lot, and maybe he's just not that good. But no, he's been fantastic even after a foot injury, and like it's been very interesting to see like these players that are coasting through college. Like you don't even have to worry about that, and even someone like Markel Fultz, who like we've seen in a couple games now, like. There were a lot of concerns coming out of uh, his uh, tenure at Washington and like him being on a horrible team and everyone saying, oh, should we be worried about that? But another player on that same team had the exact same situation and it turned out fine for him. He even had an injury and it turned out fine for him. So, I mean, I'm curious to see what Mark Fultz does this next year. Uh, yeah, I mean, I am too. He, he, he kind of, the Sixers kind of have, I mean, like the, the interesting thing to me about the whole Ben Simmons thing is like, People always use this thing like that he took a year off to travel, or he did not take a year off, but he, he missed a year to you know travel and like all this. Um, uh, like he took a year off and he was able to travel with the team, practice with the team, and do all these things. Um, they say that that's kind of an unfair advantage for him as a rookie, but to me, like that's really not that true because like Markel Fultz, for example, has taken off or not taken. I keep saying taking off, but he has missed a lot of games and he's been able to do the same things that Ben Simmons has. And then the game that he's played, he hasn't been astronomically good. And, you know, Lonzo Ball's taken a lot of missed, he's had a lot of missed games as well. And he hasn't done anything crazy with all the extra time. And, you know, Blake Griffin, obviously, he had a really good rookie year, but I don't think that many people were talking about the fact that he redshirted a year or whatever. And we've just seen that multiple times. And it, I don't understand why it's now being used as something against Ben Simmons when it really hasn't been brought up like that in the past. I mean, like, how, how is that that much different than having more years? Because, like, Steph Curry, for example, right? Like, he played three years in college. So, like, he was able to experience a team set. Like, you could say that that's an unfair advantage because, you know, he played in a system for longer. He played with a team for longer. He played, you know, over. He played 418 for an extended period of time. So, you know, it's like learning a team and learning a dynamic and all this stuff and adapting to change throughout a season. Like, you could, you could say that there's an advantage for anyone. Like, even a player that played internationally first, you could say that they understand you know, uh, fundamentals better because they played overseas or they, they understand the rules of the game differently or whatever it may be. Like, whatever a player's situation is, you can say that they have an unfair advantage. So I just think it's really dumb how people are trying to use that against Ben Simmons in his Rookie of the Year case. Oh, yeah. There's always a bigger fish, just to quote Star Wars. And I, I just noticed, actually, that uh, the NBA, in terms of uh, rookie eligibility, you're only a rookie in the year that you play your first game which is a lot different than other uh, sports leagues where you can play like nine games in the previous season or 
In the case of uh, baseball, you can play, you can have like 130 at bats in a season prior to whatever year you're uh, playing a lot, and like you will be considered a rookie in that next year. Like that's interesting yeah. in the NBA that Marco Fultz isn't going to be a rookie next year, and that seems like a load of BS if I'm going to be honest. You know, and the, I'll give you a I'll give you a horror, an example that that really really showed me that. So in 2014, Julius Randle was the seventh pick of the draft, and in his first NBA game, he had played like four, five, six minutes or something like that. I think maybe it was 14, but he basically he played a couple minutes, right? Yeah. And he broke his tibia. Ooh. And he in his very first game, and he missed the rest of the season. And the next year, he wasn't allowed to come back as a rookie. Yeah, that's BS. At that point, he, if I was he played fourteen minutes in the NBA, and that was his rookie season, he wasn't allowed to qualify for an All Rookie Team or an NBA Rookie of the Year award. Yeah, at that point, if I was an NBA voter, I would just disregard what they said, and I'd be like, "No, I'm I'm voting for Julius Randle, whether you like it or not." And the thing is that that would have been, I mean, in that year it would have really, it wouldn't have really made a difference because that was Carl Anthony Towns, and obviously yeah. he would have. But he, he would have made a team. <laughs> but like, if you look at it, if you look at a year like last year when Malcolm Brogdon was a second round pick. Averaging ten points, and you know, ten points, four rebounds, and like I think three assists. He was the rookie of the year. Like Julius Randle, if he had played his quote unquote rookie year in a year like that, he probably could have been the rookie of the year. Which, you know, I'm not sure if there are incentives for being the rookie of the year because I know there are for like other awards. But whatever the case is, like still, like having that is just a cool thing for a player. So the fact that you can't be eligible for that if you literally played 14 minutes in one game and then broke your leg, like that's silly. Yeah, that seems like one of the easiest uh, rule fixes that the NBA can make. Huh. Okay. I, that, I'm really ashamed of the NBA that they have that. Yeah, I mean, they should have, like, a thing. Like, if, if you don't... Unless you play, like, over, like, I don't know, maybe, like, 30 games or 35 games or 36 games. Because... Uh, that's a lot. It, it, whatever it may be. 20 or... Whatever the, whatever it is. Like, because, like, Joel Embiid, right? Like, he played 31 games for his rookie year. I think that was a good enough sample size to see that... He was, but he ended up not winning rookie of the year, even though he was far and away the most talented and best rookie. He just didn't win because he didn't play enough games. But he couldn't control that either. So, yeah, and it is a good point. Personally, I would do eh, like ten or fifteen games, but yeah, like the exact number doesn't matter. It's just we raise it from zero because that's yeah. not fair. So, just going over uh, some of the other stuff I was thinking about uh, as follow up on our uh, NBA two K discussion, I had a really good idea on how you could uh, make the two uh, K. But what is it, the my career uh, storyline a lot better? So wh what if when you started your my career, you had to enter your personality type? That would be brilliant. I love that about games. But yeah. When you can do that, because like in Madden, you get to kind of choose, right? Like you get to choose, like are you? You don't get to choose your personality per se, but you get to choose your background. Like you get to choose yeah. where you do you, you want to be a really high pick, a middle round pick, or a late pick. Where and then like you get different attributes based on what you choose. So like. If you're a late round pick, you have more like you know like uh like you're you pay more attention to detail because you have to work a little bit harder. But like and then you know if you're if you choose to be a high first round pick, then you have more outright skill, but you have to work more on you know developing like smaller things in your game and stuff like that. Yeah, um, and I'm talking. Sorry, continue. And just but like you're right because when you an interesting thing to me is like when you look at the NBA players, right? Like you talk about you have you have. The NBA is it's a it's an array of like different people and just different personalities, right? Because like you have a player like LeBron who's very outspoken, he talks a lot, he's he's a leader on the court, um, <coughs> he he's very vocal. And then you have a player like Kawhi who doesn't talk a lot, he's very quiet, he's very reserved. Then you have a player like uh, you know Kobe Bryant, 
who's <coughs> all about Mamba mentality himself. You have Jordan, killer instinct. You have Magic Johnson, who's all about flair and flash. You know, you have so many different personality types that you can really see in, in like, you know, Tim Duncan, super quiet and, you know, fundamentals and like all that stuff. Like different players have had their personality transition into being part of their game. Like it's like elements of their game reflect who they are, like as people and like vice versa as well. So like being able to choose that for your player, like if you want to be like a quiet, reserved player who doesn't talk to the media a lot, or if you want to be a really outspoken leader, or if you want to be like a super flashy, like, you know, uh, you know, mainstream drawing attention showtime kind of guy, or if you want to be like whatever, like you should have that freedom just like normal NBA players have that freedom. Oh, absolutely. And I'm talking literally, you just enter like your Myers-Briggs thing. And like they, they have literally like 16 different storylines for each one. Because as you said, it makes a huge difference not only in just what they would present outside of the games, but within the games as well. Like you'll play differently if you have a personality like Russell Westbrook versus someone like Kawhi. And exactly. Like, it all you know, then that that all that all that kind of stuff shows in critical moments of games. Like like if you know some like LeBron, for example, will pass the ball to Kyle Korver in the corner, but Russell Westbrook will pull up for an errant three. Like that kind of stuff matters. Oh, definitely, and, and that. I almost want to email 2K. I think that's is such an easy fix. I'm like, they wouldn't even have to tinker it that much. It's just change how the games would uh, be uh, treated and then change a little bit about the storyline. But it doesn't seem like it takes that long to add story to my career. Like, I, I don't really know what else these guys are doing at uh, 2K, honestly. They don't change it that much year to year, so. Yeah. Nice. That, that, that's the 2K follow-up. I, I also had a really interesting idea I saw for uh, scheduling. And I think this is fascinating. Like, it, we could add it to, like, our uh, proposal for what the NBA should do to fix its schedule so that we can uh, do cool stuff like have uh, games in Europe. And it actually it almost copies what we uh, talked about, to be honest. So it, it was an idea proposed by uh, Charles and Mark uh, Slicer out of the Harvard Medical School. And it was to uh, have every team play a two-game set against other teams instead of having them play one game and then go to play someone else the next day. So, for example, uh, let's say uh, you're a Western Conference team. You have two games against uh, every Eastern Conference team, right? Yeah. So, let's say uh, the Cavs are going to face the Warriors or something. So, they would just, once a year, they would go uh, to the... No, sorry, this is a horrible example, actually, because they only play one home game. So, forget that, actually. That's a horrible example. Okay, so let's say you're just a Western Conference team. You're facing another Western Conference team, and you face them four times in a year that happens plenty of times that that's what you do for your divisions and no that's not what you do for divisions that's what you do for uh, one of the divisions that you face outside of your division you face your division team six times you face one of the other divisions four times and then the other one three times so let's say you're facing that one four times so just once a year you and let's say the the warriors are traveling out to face OKC or something so they once a year travel out to OKC and they have a two-game set against them. They do a back-to-back. And then once a year, OKC goes out to uh, Golden State, and they do a back-to-back against Golden State. So basically you're saying that rather than playing like spread-out four-game season series, you would just do it in sets, yep. both games at home. Exactly, and it eliminates the biggest problem with doubleheaders, and that is overnight travel and then playing a game the next day. Yeah, I mean, I think it could be an interesting idea. The only, I mean... I guess like depending on how you depending on how you organize the sets, you you'd have to do it I think you would have to do it strategically because like 
if you put like I don't know, like if, if let's say like a team has a set where they play like you know they play their back to back against the Warriors and then they have like you know have like five days of rest and then they have their next set is against two games back to back against Houston and then you know they play their next set is against Cleveland. Like you know, like, if they if, if you organize it in such a way that like every, like you got good breaks in between with like. If you, you know how you and I were talking about, you know, planning uh, your division kind of by the teams that are as good as you? Yeah. Rather than just, you know... And you can still do that, you, and you can just have that yeah, be the you, six yeah, games. If you, incorporated, if you incorporated all of that, then I, I agree that could, be really, that could be a really unique and good idea. Uh, but don't, I mean, just, as long as you wouldn't be playing, like, amazing teams consistently, like, literally all the time, like, then I think it would be okay. Yeah, and I mean you always randomize that. Nobody, nobody tries to set up the uh, the schedule to screw over one team, e- even yeah. if uh, something like the Nuggets playing seven road games in fifteen days says otherwise. Yeah, like I don't even know how that kind of thing happens. Like you would think the NBA would notice at some point. Yeah. Like, it, it, do you think like the NBA when they're making their schedule, if something like that comes up, they should? like, go out of their way to try and fix it for that one team by, like, adding in, subtracting games for other teams? I'm sorry, could you ask that again? Yeah, so, like, let's say that the NBA schedule makers, they uh, notice when they're making the schedule, oh, crap, we have uh, seven game, uh, seven road games in 15 days for the Nuggets. That's not going to do. Let's try and fix that. And then they uh, just change when they're playing teams, and they got a rest day in between, add a doubleheader earlier on in the season. Do you think that's something they should do, or they should just roll with it and say, "Sorry, this one team is going to have a really bad stretch, but it's within like the within a reasonable uh, sense that like we can just not have to worry about it." I mean, I think that they should definitely look into not having teams do that because, like, like it goes back to that point that I was making about how it's not fair for a team as talented as Golden State to have like one of the easier schedules in the league. Like, that's just ridiculous. Like, I feel like what they should do is they should. This is also kind of like I guess to curb tanking because it allows teams to win. It, I mean, it doesn't necessarily curb it, but I guess, I feel like some teams would probably like it wouldn't be as easy to lose games if they're playing an easier schedule. So, like I feel like the word the teams that are like you should give you should help the like it's kind of like I mean I guess this is a little bit you know kind of like a political thing, but like you know you can help like. There's no. I feel like there's really not a reason to help the rich get richer. You know, like you don't need to. You don't need to aid the Warriors by giving them the easiest schedule in the league. But like a team like the Suns, who really can't do anything against anyone, like you know, they, they could benefit from you know winning a couple games against you know having an easier schedule. And I'm not saying that you have to give the Warriors you know seven road games in 15 days or anything like that, but just something to like make it a little bit more challenging for them. Like you know maybe have them play their back to backs against tougher teams, or you know maybe give them. Uh, you know, tougher challenges consecutively at home, so they can't just go on these crazy long home winning streaks. Like I remember, across two, they had like a 40, 40 uh, extending across two seasons, they had like a forty something game win streak at home. Yeah. Like the losses were like the, it was like March something two thousand fifteen, and the next time they lost at home was like April two thousand sixteen. It had been like an entire year almost since they had lost the game at home. Um, you know, so I guess just tweaks to make it more fair for every team. Um, and I think it, I feel like that would work because obviously you have like, sometimes teams don't live up to expectations and sometimes teams live past expectations. And you know, that that's just kind of a part of it. It's like, if you gave a team an easier schedule and then they end up being really good, it's like, Oh, you know, now you have a surprise team in the playoffs or something like that. Or, 
you know, then if you give a really good team a bad schedule and, you know, maybe they fall off a little bit, you know, that's just a part of the game. Like, I just feel like it's that, that kind of thing should be done because, like, it just makes everything more fair, I feel like. And I, I, like, I don't, I'm not for constantly seeing the same thing over and over again. Like, I don't want, I don't want there to be a Cavs Warriors 4. Like, I don't like that. Like, I want different people, different players, different teams, different coaches, different team, like, different states. Like, I just want more people to have more opportunity. And I just feel like that would, that can be accomplished if teams play schedules that they can actually win games in. No, and I think that's a great point. And uh, I actually have, uh, that is pretty much my same philosophy for the playoffs. That's why I want every team to get a, a championship before like I can even start thinking about, okay, who do I really like here? Because just imagining like a fan base that has never had a championship, like that's that's a sad thing though. Like just thinking, okay, you're not even on the same level as like a team that has two championships and like has the monkey off their back compared to somebody like the Celtics. Like you're rooting for the Celtics to get another championship? Are you kidding me? Like they already have 16 or 17 at this point. This is ridiculous. And like you have enough for a, a freaking armory at that point. But yeah, like it's it just you gotta ha- you can't make the rich richer. And like it, I almost wonder if like they should have like a factor within the algorithm that's creating the playoffs where it's like okay, not the playoffs, the regular season schedule where you're like okay, if we have one of these uh, screwy things where. A team is gonna have to have one of these weird uh, road stand, uh, road, uh, road trips, or like they're gonna just have like a weird back to back. Just have like a factor where okay, if it can be the Warriors or like it can be like whoever had the be- was the best on the regular season standings, let's have it be them, and we we'll just do stuff like that. But something I was looking at earlier was just the amount of mileage different teams have to travel because that's a big factor in terms of uh, who's gonna be like uh, the most rested and uh, just looking at that the teams like the trailblazers the timberwolves the nuggets the heat like they all uh, lead the league in the uh, miles traveled and teams like the rockets the warriors the uh, the celtics the wizards like those teams are at the bottom of the league and it's very interesting to see like how even the distribution is between good teams and bad teams and or in terms of miles traveled, like about thirty five hundred for the on the low end, and like fifty five hundred on the high end, maybe it's a thousand. I don't know. Doesn't really matter. It's just order order of magnitude. But yeah, like just looking at how like good teams and bad teams uh, both have to deal with those same problems, and just wondering, hey, maybe the Timberwolves would have been a lot better this year if they didn't have to deal with a problem like that, or hey, the Trailblazers could have been even better. Like, do you think that's worth uh, thinking about it in terms of that, or and, do, and does the team just get used to it at a certain point? I mean, it depends on the team, I think, because if you have more talent, then it's going to be much easier for you to get accustomed to something like that, whereas if you're a struggling team that doesn't really have that much help, it's going to be much more difficult to get used to it. So I think it would vary from team to team. Yeah, that, that's probably a good point. It, and, like, it's just something that those uh, franchises have to get over at some point, like, Ultimately, owners can relocate franchises if they want to. I hate it when that happens, but uh, it can, and like you can do that. But it, this is something interesting because uh, I've always been super against having multiple uh, NBA franchises within a given city. So, like something like the Clippers and the Lakers, I really don't like something like that because I think it just splits the fan base, and you should have one fan base, and that's that one city, and then you're done with it. That like you don't really need a rivalry there. You can have a situation like, uh, let's say, Oakland and uh, San Francisco, where like it's 
yeah, unfortunately, there isn't the San Francisco Warriors. Obviously, they're thinking about making that name change, but, like, just, you know, like, you can have cities that are super close to each other, but they're separate fan bases. And, like, just splitting the fan base doesn't make, make any sense, and you're just stealing from another uh, city that can have another fran uh, franchise, and, like, that uh, is comes up for me a lot now because you uh, see, like, Something like in the NFL a couple years ago, the St. Louis Rams moving to uh, Los Angeles and then the Chargers joining him from San Diego. Like just a shrinking of how many different fan bases you have an actual team in. And first of all, I don't think that's a smart strategy in terms of uh, marketing. Like you want to build up a franchise. You don't want to just exploit one that's already built because like that franchise is already going to be rooting your sport, uh, a sports team on to begin with. And then second of all, I I think it's a cool thing to say, like, you have a sports team in, like, a small city, like, uh, I'm trying to think of an example in the NBA, like, something like Charlotte, uh, the Charlotte Hornets. That's a cool thing that, like, they're not placed in, like, just, I don't know, like, another Washington team or something. That's a nice thing to have them in a smaller market or uh, something like, uh, I'm trying to think of, it, like, a Midwest team or something, and not, not the Nuggets. You, you know, let's use the Timberwolves as an example. They easily... Could move them closer to Chicago or something because like, okay, it's a bigger media market. But it's a cool thing to have them in their own like little region of the NBA map and like have their own their own franchise there. And like that's a nice thing. And like I yeah. I, I go back and forth on if like uh, Brooklyn uh, the uh, the Brooklyn Nets and the New York Knicks are really a problem there. I think I think they're all right, but I go back and forth. But like yeah, I just don't like it when franchises are just overlapping each other, like, just put on top of each other, because I don't think it's, A, necessarily for the rivalries, which is the main point, right, for why they do them. So, like, I don't see why you do them. Yeah, I mean... <clears throat> I mean, like, one, for an example, right, like, I think one of the one of the benefits to have to moving, um, like, to moving the... Uh, one of the benefits to moving like the Seattle Supersonics to the Oklahoma City Thunder was it kind of it kind of moved away from the whole West Coast consolidation because there like at the time there were five teams on the West Coast like there was the four California teams and then Washington so you know maybe what they could they I know like maybe they could have moved like the Kings to Seattle right and then moved the Sonics to Oklahoma City or something like that so that team would still have a team or so that city would still have a team but I mean I agree with you having all of them in one place is just kind of ridiculous because like I mean it, it also kind of goes back to the division thing because you always end up playing in like, um, like the California division is extremely easy for a team like Golden State, right? So having more spread out would change up the divisions, which if they're not going to do the thing that we were talking about and doing it in terms of winning, but like if you still wanted to do it by location, you'd have to make some changes as a result of something like that, which I think would be welcome, or I would welcome. Yeah. And like, I, I really, I think the NBA is lucky in this regard is that like, they don't, they don't have this much of a problem, but just looking at other sports, it, becomes bad you look at something like baseball where like chicago has two teams uh, uh obviously new york has two teams and los angeles has two teams like that's bad you have hockey where literally you have like three teams right on top of each other in new york that being the devils the uh what are you the islanders and then the rangers like the, it's ridiculous like literally you have like three teams within a five mile radius of each other and it, it, i i really think it's a bad decision on like sport uh on like sports leagues parts i Literally, the only reason I've heard from them is rivalries, and it doesn't do that. So, like, uh, that's why I feel like the Clippers either they should go back to San Diego, or the heck, move them to Seattle, or I don't know, put them in Buffalo. Why not? And like, just 
don't have overlapping franchises today. Like, it's a cool thing to have, like, these small, small market teams. It's a cool thing to have, like, the, the San Antonio Spurs. And, like, you can see that, like, it hasn't hurt them to be in a smaller market. In fact, they've thrived within it, and, like, they have one of the most loyal, loyal uh, fan bases in the entire league because of it. I agree. I completely agree. I mean, I, as, like, so I guess, I mean, as someone who's lived in a lot of, like, I've lived in, I've lived in Michigan, Florida, Minnesota, Tennessee, and uh, Virginia. So, I mean, like, just, and, like, I don't like the fact that Virginia doesn't have like real sports teams. Like we have to share with Washington, right? Like, yeah. If you know, if we could have our own, like obviously that'd be cool. And like, Florida, Florida having two is kind of unnecessary because it's like, I mean, why can't we? Like, why is there one in Miami or Orlando when Miami and Orlando are like not that far away from each other and stuff like that? Um, and having two in literally the same building in Los Angeles, like you said earlier, I agree, was so stupid. Yeah, and I I agree with you. It is a weird thing to. Have uh, Virginia and uh, how many sports teams that would that's always a prime candidate for uh, getting a new team, but and obviously there's the point about it being a major college sports town. But if you look at it, Oklahoma City was the exact same way. But eh, the only problem with it is pretty much the only way to fix that problem is to have them experience a lot of su success early on. Uh, something that like you might see in hockey with the Vegas Golden Knights. Everyone was super concerned. Oh, you're putting a hockey team in Las Vegas. How's that going to go, buddy? You, you, you think you're going to develop any franchise out of that? But they've been one of the best teams, you know, best expansion franchises in history. So, like, they've built up a really loyal franchise, and it, it shows that, like, relocating uh, teams to places like that, it is a viable solution. And really, I just want to move the Clippers. I, I, I just get really annoyed by the Clippers. But, you know, it, it probably will never happen because they're so dead set on uh, just having them under one building for some reason. Yeah, I mean, I don't, yeah, they, they could have just, they literally could have been anywhere else. I mean, because, you know, they're like, New Mexico doesn't have a team. They're kind of in the same region as Phoenix. And, you know, uh, New Mexico Washington doesn't have a team. And I don't know. I, just moving back to San Diego in my book, they they were there for like, what, five, ten years? Which team? The San Diego Clippers. Yeah, I, I'm not sure where they were. But regardless, I mean, like, you know, it's like, if, if you have such a large state like California, then yeah, I, I agree. You can have two teams there, but like having four kind of in the same area is ridiculous. Yeah, and like I, f I feel like the Sacramento Kings and the Golden State Warriors are fine for the most part because you, you get a pretty good division between like NorCal and, so and SoCal. Like it's just, it, it, it's like actually really far apart if you look at it and like there's like a really interesting thing where like some parts of Canada t are like actually farther south than uh, parts of California, and like nobody remembers that because like California is just so uh, tall, and like it, I mean no, yeah yeah I mean you can have three teams, but I th I just like to have basically it's like the issue with like because I'm not exactly sure how far Sacramento and like I don't know how far they are they all are yeah. but like having two in the same building when like there are teams out there like there are cities and states out there that desperately want teams is kind of like, I don't want to say selfish, it's probably the wrong word, but it's just weird. Like, it's just, why? Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. Like, what, do you know any uh, places that, like, desperately want sports franchises at this point? Because I, I was doing some reading on the economics behind getting a sports franchise, and apparently the economics does not work out at all for cities that are buying into the teams, because apparently uh, the profits that uh, sports teams make they just come out at the expense of other entertainments. So, like, instead of going to the movies or, like, 
I, I don't know, going to the grocery store or something, if that's exciting to go to Kroger or whatever. Like, they just go and watch a sports game, so, like, it's not actually bringing any uh, additional revenue, it's just moving it around. I mean, I think the only city that really comes to mind for me is Seattle, because I know yeah. they've desperately wanted a team ever since Oklahoma City left. Yeah, okay, that, that, that makes sense, and yeah, let's just get Seattle fixed, because I, I think everyone, and like, all NBA fans want to even bring back the Supersonics, and frankly, I think Adam Silver does as well, I be curious to see if it, he's going to do expansion franchises anytime soon because he's always mentioning that like oh we don't really want to do that but he's always talking about every other reform so I'd be curious. To he's see. he's a strange commissioner but I mean at the end I can mean well I guess it's so you can ask for I suppose. Yeah, like I mean nobody wanted the Nara David Stern. At least this guy claims to be moral and like he's making the NBA money. That's all we can really ask for. That is true. I just wish. I mean, I, the only thing he just. I mean. I, I just he, he needs to be, a, I, in my opinion, just a little bit more decisive on some things. Like, are we doing sports gambling or not? Like, what's your stance on the referees' players issue? Like, why did why wasn't the All Star Game draft televised and stuff like that? Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, did Did you watch the recent uh, NBA Two K uh, draft? Uh, I did not. Yeah, neither did I. Like, apparently, uh, the NBA is a partnership with uh, NBA Two K, and they're making like a Two K league. Or like they, yeah, yeah, it's called. I actually, I do know. I, I know actually quite a bit about that. It's it's called the Two K E League. It's like the way that it's done is NBA teams sign contracts with their E League team. So like, there's a Toronto Raptors and there's a Toronto Raptors E League team. There's an Orlando Magic and Orlando Magic E League team. Uh, you know, and so so on and so forth. Not every NBA team has one. I think like 17 of the 30 NBA teams have signed on to have one. And basically, the way it works is uh, the Two K signs these players to legitimate like jobs like it's contracts and then you travel with a gaming team and you play the video game and you play against other teams like you play against online again like so like the the toronto the e-league toronto raptors would play a game against the e-league milwaukee bucks and you know it's like a full season you get like stand it's literally just this nba season in a game oh that's really cool i might and i may have to yeah and there's there are like legitimate salaries involved like yeah yeah, it's like a legitimate. It's like a full time job. Like you travel with your gaming team, and then you go into like different places, and you play the, you play your video game against them, and and it's like you. But you don't use players who are on the team. Like you use your own created player, and you make your team. Oh, okay. Is it like all created players, or is it just whoever you? No, want? yeah, it's all created players. So like your team will be like if your team your team is twelve men, like 12, 12 people, and it's just twelve created players. Oh, okay, gotcha. You, you control your your player, and like it's you know because in the game you get to make different types of archetypes. So like, so like it, it it really has no affiliation to the players who are on the actual team. But like, so like for example, like yeah. you could have a, a pure playmaker as your point guard, and then you could have a pure sharpshooter as your shooting guard, and then a slashing post scorer as your small forward, and then a three point shooting rebounder as your center, and then a rebounding uh, rim protector as your power forward, or whatever. And then you just, you know, because there are different combinations of players that you can make. And then you just suit up 12 of them, and then you, you literally just play a video game and make money as a real job. Well, that's fascinating. I didn't know that it was all created players. I'm going to have to look at some of the logic that uh, players are using to uh, go through that. Because, like, that's the kind of stuff I'm fascinated by, being, like, someone that always did the franchise drafts. Like, they it would enjoy doing the drafts more than actually playing with the franchise teams. Just seeing the logic of, like, team creation and that kind of thing, it really fascinates me. But... 
yeah, I'm definitely gonna have to hunt around and see like when that starts and uh, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. I think you can legitimately. I think you can legitimately watch the games. And, I mean, I, I mean, like so personally for me, like in two K, like in two K eighteen, my my creative player is a is so you get a primary skill and a secondary skill. So my primary skill is shot creating, which is like shooting shots up the dribble, spin jumpers, you know, moving jumpers, uh, dribble pull ups. Um, hop jumpers, uh, floaters, you know, kind of like off balance, creative shots and stuff. And then my secondary skill is playmaking. So um, a shot create. I guess I'm, I guess sort of like the player that I have is sort of like Allen Iverson in a way. Like he, he dribbles the ball, shoots kind of off balance, crazy shots, and uh, that kind of stuff. So there's the skills that are offered. Are, there's like three point shooting, post scoring, driving and finishing, passing and ball handling, um, uh, rebounding, defending, and uh, so on and so forth. Yeah, okay. Uh, just looking through uh, some of the stuff, uh, apparently how 2K has selected uh, players to be part of it. You had to win uh, 50 games in the Pro-Am mode, whatever that is. And then, yep. and then you had to uh, submit an application, and that uh, was a sieve that brought it down to 72,000 players. And then uh, apparently based on those, they invited so many of them out to a combine to, I guess, play against each other, and then the top 102 players... We're invited to uh, draft on uh, April fourth, and uh, wow, that's that's really cool. Actually, uh, it's interesting. There's only 102 picks, and I wonder what happened to the two other guys. And uh, yeah, okay, so six rounds. So like, is it uh, six person teams? Yeah. Okay, uh, that's interesting. How does that work? Is it like each one has like an individual team, or do they have them like play as players? Uh, ask your question again. Sorry. So like uh, within the games, like how do they do it? Do they like match up uh, individual uh, players against players? Like not not players in the game. I'm talking about like, let's say you have uh, you know, let me just pull out a random name here. You have someone like uh, uh, Brandon uh, Caicedo. Uh, would he uh, on the Cavs if they were playing the Celtics or something? Would he play Alex Snowden or would he play the entire Celtics team? Oh no! So you 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 get your you get like an individual matchup. So you have like a person you guard and then a person you try and score on. And then it literally just like a real game. Like every player has their own matchup. Oh, so like you, so they do it like it's like ten people are playing one game at the same time. Yes, on the court at one time, yeah. And okay. then you all play online. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, so like you're all on your, and then you know, obviously you have to make sure that your connection is like amazing and all that stuff. So. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But you, you all, you go to the like your team. Like I said, your team travels in real life to the same place. So you sit in one room together and you all play in the same place. Yeah, yeah. So like something so that, I, that way, because like you, then you can legitimately be in the room with one another and call to each other, like you know, like hey, like just like you would in an actual game, like you tell your teammate to be somewhere for a defensive like play or a offensive cut or whatever, you know, whatever it is. Like you get open and like you talk, and, you know, just like how you do in an actual game. It's just a video game way to do it. Okay, so the, uh, apparently they're starting uh, the season play with a tournament on uh, May 1st, and then the regular season starts on May 11th. So maybe yep. so that could be interesting to check out like if the if we get through the playoffs. Yep. Yeah, the playoffs will be... I mean, the playoff, our playoff discussion will probably cool down because there's going to be so much time between games and whatnot. So. Yeah, like the, the first round is going to be just a ton, but then after that it's going to cool down a lot, as you said, yeah. Okay, that's that's really interesting. That uh, goes off of uh, something I've been reading about a lot lately, which is the Overwatch League, which I'm sure you've run into a bunch. I haven't actually watched any of it, but basically, it's the same idea where like uh, the gaming company Blizzard sponsors a league where a bunch of gamers can go out and uh, 
play video games and like be treated as actual athletes and they can make money for it and it's been really uh, making esports more mainstream, and like you see, ma major uh, main mainstream uh, news companies actually talking about it. And, like it's getting a lot of coverage, and it's been really interesting to see. And uh, I'm fascinated to see if other uh, sports leagues take up what the NBA is doing with 2K. Yeah, I think esports is it's becoming a trend. I think I think um, I I'm not sure what's I think maybe it was soccer tried it or something. I'm not sure. Some, some, they've been trying it in, uh, in some other sport, but um, the NBA kind of just wanted to get in on the idea and kind of, kind of run with it just so they can make some money off of it. I'm pretty sure because it brings in more revenue. Yeah, you no, know, definitely. Like anytime you can uh, create another revenue source, they definitely should. Like, does the NBA get like all of the revenue for it, or is it like? I think, they, I think no. I think two K owes them a share of what they make. I think they get a majority, obviously, because. Having a gaming contract to have a company with a league as big as the NBA, I'm sure the NBA gets most of it. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay. So, uh, just as the final topic, uh, so I, I don't know if you know this, but uh, other, some other sports leagues, like uh, hockey, if you lose a game in overtime, like it, basically how they set up the standings, let me start from there. So, basically, in hockey, if you uh, win a game, you get two points. If you lose a game in overtime, you get one point. If you just outright lose a game in regulation, you get zero points. And then at the end of the season, playoff uh, seeding is determined based on who has the most points. Do you think that would be a smarter system for the NBA to implement than uh, the current system now where a loss in overtime counts the same as a loss in uh, regulation? Well, I mean, I think it it's an interesting question for sure, but I think in terms of the NBA, like, overtimes in the NBA can be like so it can be like they can be so like are you talking this strictly for the regular season? Yes. Well, I mean I'm not sure why this is, but anytime I'm discussing an overtime game in the NBA, I always think back to 2015 game one when Kyrie Irving broke his knee in game one of the finals. So I just feel like the problem with counting like the problem with counting an overtime loss or an overtime an overtime loss differently than a regular, you know, than anything different is that the complexion of a game can change, kind of. I mean, I mean that's the case in any game, like as it can happen. But I mean, in terms of the standings right now, I don't like if you maybe like. So you said that win win it, win in overtime or a win in regulation counts as two. Yes. A loss you get nothing, and then an over if you lose in overtime you get one. One. Okay. Well. I personally wouldn't have that much of an issue with it, as long, you know, as long as they could obviously make it work out normally. Because our overtime games really, like, they don't happen that frequently in the NBA. I don't like, you know, they happen. Yeah, I'll look at the percentage. Relatively often, but like not, you know, an insane amount or anything like that. So I just feel like the league itself would be against it because you always hear these players being like a loss is a loss and all this stuff, and you know, we shouldn't get awarded for losing and stuff. And I mean, I just kind of feel like it would kind of go against NBA culture just in terms of how you know the players view it because. You hear all this stuff about how these players don't like when people, like, you know, some players don't like it, how players get rewarded for participation and, like, all this other stuff. So, um, I, I mean, I don't really think it would change much because, like, the better teams would end up winning in overtime anyway. Um, and it would kind of, I mean, I guess it could create a little bit of an issue because, like, if, like, let's say, like, somehow miraculously, right, like, like so the other day, the other day the Rockets were playing the Suns and that game was, 101 to 101, but the Rockets won on a buzzer beating. 
a buzzer-beating jump shot. Like, if that game had ended in overtime, and then the Rockets end up winning it in overtime, like, you know, can you really give the Suns a win just because they... Can you can you really give the Suns a point just because they competed and lost? Like, I mean, I feel like that would kind of just... It would promote the idea of, like, awarding something even when you lose, which to me really isn't a big deal because I understand that it's not a big deal, but for some people I think it could be a big deal. Yeah, no, I can definitely see that as well. And uh, just looking off of uh, some trends, it looks like play, uh, teams play on average about five overtime games a season. So, like that, could, if you were, I don't know, you uh, basically move that up to six, and then you just say, oh, you go five hundred in overtime, which isn't an unreasonable thing considering you were tied in regulation, which means you both basically played about as well in the, in that time. Obviously, the team that's better is more likely to win in regulation, but. Just humor me for the fact that I can just uh, use that as a simple calculation. That would add like three points to uh, any any team's uh, overall standing, and like it would take into account better the actual strength of the team because it's a lot more impressive to uh, go into a game and take it to overtime and lose by like one point or something than to get blown up by forty points. But really, I I I see this whole thing as like a a dirty solution to the problem of uh, incorporating point differential into how we or, uh, how we evaluate teams, and I think we should just find a way to f uh, actually have point differential be more uh, conse consequential in how we uh, do playoff seeding. Like for the first thing we should do is have that be number one tiebreaker instead of head to head. But then, like I almost feel like that's not even enough, and like you have to go farther than that. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think another interesting point is that the NBA, I think. It's Basketball is one of the only sports where they don't do ties and if overtime is tied, right? Uh, no, actually, most sports don't do that. I think the NFL is like, and, and soccer, obviously, are like the only sports that yeah, do yeah. do that. It, so hockey just goes multiple overtimes. I've never watched hockey. Yeah, so, like, yeah. Oh, okay. All right, yeah. I mean, that's, that's something I've thought about before. I mean, I've, I've never, like, thought that that should happen. I've just thought about, like, how the NBA could be different if that was implemented. But, I mean, I feel like... The, the things that I think the standings necessarily don't really need to be changed, like the way that wins and stuff are accounted for and like all that, like I don't think the way to qualify for the playoffs needs to be changed because I think the fact that they eliminated that whole thing about winning your division gives you a higher seed. Like I think eliminating that was good. Like that was, I think the most glaring thing that needed to be changed. I think now it's just more about divisions and who you play in your schedule because it like, I just like, like we were talking about earlier, I just feel like your schedule is what is going to affect how much you win regardless of however like however it's calculated whoever you play in your schedule that's what's going to account for how many games you win and all that so uh i just feel like tweaking of the schedule and making the better teams play better competition more consistently to prove that they're actually the better team you know instead of just having an extremely easy schedule where they're able to win so many more games because they're you know they have a superior schedule where they're constantly playing like all their back-to-backs against super easy teams or they get the most rest between back-to-backs consistently or whatever it is. I feel like, you know, curbing that and getting away from that stuff is going to do, it would do more to kind of solidify the standings than would, you know, making tweaks in terms of like how you're, how you're accounting, how you would account for it, like in terms of total points or whatever. Yeah. I, I agree with you. That may have, I may have taken it a bit too far in my uh, advanced metrics, uh, Oh no, your point differential point is fine. I'm just saying, like, what I would like personally for me, like, I mean, I, I think my biggest issue with the league as a whole is that like I can't stand that such good teams get to play such easy schedules. Like, yeah. I don't appreciate. Like, if you're if you if you like 
Golden State, when the year they won 73, had, like, I think one of the 10 easiest schedules in the league. Like, why? They won 67 games the year before. Why would they have? Uh, so I just think the degree of difficulty should be counted. You know, they, they should be factored much into more for the better teams and stuff. And, like, even a guy that I love, LeBron. Like, LeBron, like, I can't lie until, like, you know, I'm sure that, I'm sure at some points he's had easy schedules that he's played, which have allowed him to win 50 games for the past 10 years. He's on a personal streak of his own, by the way, if you didn't know. He's won 50 games for 10 years in a row. Wow. That's crazy. Dang. Is he going to get that this year? year The lockout short year, he didn't win 50 games, but the pace that he played at would have given him more than 50 if if it was a full season. Yeah, yeah, of course. Which I I count as 51 season. But yeah, I personally, I mean, like, I wouldn't get too deep into it personally. Like, I mean, if they did, and if it, as long as it was easy to follow, I really wouldn't mind any changes that they made as long as the NBA would become more competitive because, like, I'm tired of, like, because, like, I want to be able to watch a riveting and exciting NBA game, like, every day, which you really can't do because, you no. know, you really only get really – you get, like, maybe one, two exciting games a week, yeah. you know, sometimes three. <clears throat> and then – Sometimes they'll pack like three in one night, which is just annoying because the rest of the week is completely dull. No, absolutely. Like I hate it when sports leagues do that. Sorry? I hate it when sports leagues do that. Yeah, like you have like a bunch of games in like one day that are awesome or like at the exact same time. And I'm like, I don't want to be watching two games at once. That's a terrible experience. Exactly. Because like I was watching this NBA games the other day and the Thunder were playing the Rockets, the Pelicans were playing the Warriors, and the Spurs were playing the Blazers. And they all all of those games were on at like 7 or 7.30. Oh, that sucks. So that was really annoying. Because, like, you know, like, it, ideally the NBA experience for me would be that I get to sit down and comfortably watch a nice, competitive, fun game to watch every night. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's the ideal situation and what anyone would want. And I wonder if the NBA should just make it more of an effort to uh, try and schedule the games out that way. But I imagine it's hard enough to even get one that uh, has as few back-to-backs as they do right now and, like, it takes into account the arena availability for every team. Like they're probably right on the limits at at this point you know, for like what they can do for uh, boosting like the uh, how good uh, games are. So like I don't I don't know there's much more they can do for that, especially over like a, what a, what a, the the regular season lasts like 160 days. So that's really hard to think about it that much. But I mean they have a lot of time to figure it out. I'm sure there's something they could do to at least. Alleviate situations like that, yeah, where you have free games going on at once that are all awesome. Yeah, and, and speaking of awesome games, the the Jazz are up thirty points on Golden State at halftime. You know what I called it? Sixty-two to thirty-three. Golden State only had thirty-three points at halftime, but apparently Kevin Wait, Durant what? was in the world. Thirty-three at halftime. Oh my god. Yep, they had twenty four points. They only like they had twenty four points with seven minutes left in the second, and then they only scored six and three is nine points for in eight minutes. I, I I'm a bit speechless there, so I think that's a great way to end the podcast. The, yeah. Holy crap. And, and the Jazz are playing really well. Derek Favors has eight, Rudy Gobert has nine, Ricky Rubio has nine, Donovan Mitchell has fifteen, Jay Crowder has seven, someone O'Neal has nine. And Jonas Jerebko has three, and Joe Ingles has two. So they're really balanced in scoring, whereas Golden State has Draymond has four, Durant has 13, Pachulia has two, Quinn Cook has zero, finally coming back down to earth. Clay Thompson has six, David West has zero, Kevon Looney has six, Sean Livingston has two, and everyone else has zero. They're losing, well, it's not really 30 points, it's 29 points, but 33-62 halftime. 
Golden State is down. Yeah, and enough for news around the NBA. Yeah, Dwight Howard keeps up what seems like a, a ridiculous streak of getting 15 or more rebounds in a game. Like, I, I don't know when he just turned it on this season, but he's been getting all the rebounds. It really? Yeah, I like mean, seven, 17 it. in this game against the Pacers tonight. Oh, wow, yeah, he did. Wow. He's, yeah, he's having an underrated season. Yeah, definitely. If that team, if that team, if Nick Batum wasn't playing so, like, I don't know what's wrong with him, but that team could actually be really good. Yeah, like, if he was anything more than a role player, that team could actually make some waves. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, that is definitely a good way to end. Yeah, definitely. So if you guys enjoyed the podcast as much as I did and are excited for the playoffs as we've been uh, just boosting it up as much as we can, Make sure to give us a five-star review on iTunes or whatever podcasting platform you use. We'd really appreciate that. Go check out the YouTube channel. I make it worthwhile, the fact that I'm literally waiting like an hour an hour just every night to upload these things. YouTube rendering uh, takes up a lot of time, so make me feel like it was worthwhile by giving us a subscribe, hit that notification bell, give us a comment saying, hey, nice job, Brian, good job uh, sitting around while you're podcasting, watching a, just a progress part go up super slow, or watching it get stuck at 99% for like 10 minutes and then you're worried your computer crashed or something. The struggles are real. And you know what? We're going to see you next time to talk about the playoffs, talk about the matchups, get sighted.